Ladies and gentlemen, this picture contains scenes which under no circumstance should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. Welcome back to another episode of Caustic Content here on the Optimism Vaccine Podcast Network. And this is, of course, the podcast where myself and my longtime friend Adam Myros, well, we basically torture each other. That's the long and short of it. We are going through the depths of the various streaming services trying to find the most obscure, terrible, low-budget dreck that we can find. And then we each choose a movie, pit them head-to-head, and at the end we vote to see who comes out victorious for finding the worst thing this week. And boy, uh, as usual, a couple of winners. Couple of real winners this week, Myros. How you doing? Uh I'm doing all right. I'm a little exhausted with the process. I guess yeah, this is uh, hard. Why is podcasting <laughs> so hard? It's not supposed to be like this. Uh, I guess uh, we had some more coherent entries this week, at the very least. If nothing else, I didn't have trouble uh, interpreting either film. <laughs> no, they're both pretty straightforward. So. <laughs> You know, it's it's the little things. It's the little things. Uh, you know, we should probably go over the rules, too, before we jump into things so people know that there are some limitations on what we can do. So, first of all, we said that we get these from the various streaming services, so Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, Crackle, whatever whatever you got. We can uh, use them all. Not Crackle, I mean. Not, not Let's no. be Let's, realistic. Yeah, we're not going to use Crackle. Come on. Uh, mostly we're using Amazon just because they seem to have the largest catalog of movies where people are just like, fuck it, I'm just going to put this up and no one cares. Uh, and, yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the treasure trove right there, Amazon. Now, we can only use what the streaming service provides to ascertain whether or not this movie should be in competition. So that is, you know, the description that they give us, the little synopsis. That's the picture that's associated with the movie. And sometimes there's a trailer, but not always. So that's kind of what we go off of. Now, well, I've been addition- leaning on these trailers too heavily, Steve. I I think the last uh, couple times I just keep getting bit on these. i got to start yeah. going with uh, stuff that is too cheap to even include a trailer. Yeah, that that might be your best, your best move. <laughs> I, I think I told you this. I have one movie on my list where... Uh, they couldn't even upload the trailer properly, and if you click the trailer button, it just starts playing the movie. <laughs> so, that's a thing. Anyways, uh, so yeah, we can only use what the streaming service provided provides. In addition to that, we have decided no found footage, or at least no intentional found footage. Uh, yeah, and some could creep up on us at some point if we have a movie with, say, no trailer and a terrible description, and, you know, maybe it happens to be found footage, so we're trying to avoid that. Uh, and the reason for that is simply, you know, Myros and I have watched a lot of bad movies over the years, and I, I think we're tapped out on bad found footage because, you know, you've seen one, you've, you've seen them all, and I, I don't think either one of us can do it anymore. Yeah, it's just, it, it'd get too redundant. That's that's the long and short yeah. of it. You could do this entire show with just terrible found footage movies. There's so many of them. So, found footage off the table. Now, we also have... The Godfrey Ho Clause, and this is the first rule that we initiated, and that is once you use a director, you can't use that director again. 
We call it the Godfrey Ho Clause because the very first episode I used the Godfrey Ho movie. And conceivably, uh, I could just roll in every week with a new Godfrey Ho movie and probably do pretty well. So <laughs> we're going to say no Godfrey Ho movies. In addition to that, we can't choose anything that any of us have ever previously seen. So as I mentioned before, both of us have watched a lot of trash, a lot, we've watched a lot of trash together. But we can't go back to those trash movies and drag them up and use them for this podcast. And also, the state of Georgia is on probation. <laughs> We've had some really bad movies from Georgia lately, so Georgia, you're on notice. We, we don't know if we're going to ban you yet, but it, it's looking that way. So watch out. It's possible. Anything uh, is possible. So, Steve, we got to tell the audience we got we've got a special treat this episode. Uh, we, we're always we do have a very special on. treat. <laughs> yes. We're, we're yammering on saying it, you know, directors, get in touch with us. We'd be happy to talk with you. Uh, we don't do this to, to throw pies at people. You know, we, we, we haven't made any damn movies ourselves. We're just a couple of idiots, uh, with a podcast. Uh, so, you know, we have nothing but love for most of these directors. Well, most of them. I could think of, uh, a person in tonight's lineup who I would not wish to speak with. No. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but, but for the most part, we love hearing from these folks, and uh, we actually have an interview uh, lined up for the back end of this episode with the uh, director of a previous feature, uh, Blood Dynasty. Uh, so that should be exciting. Yeah, so make sure after this episode wraps up, make sure you keep on listening, because, yeah, Chris Alexander, director of Blood Dynasty, we're going to have an interview with him that we're going to put on the end of this podcast. So, yeah, very special episode. This, this is a big one. And... Who boy, uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested to talk to him because we had a few kind of things to say about his movie, specifically his music. So uh, hopefully he can kind of illuminate some of that and talk about his process a little bit, and we can get to know the guy a little bit more. So yeah, maybe he'll just, maybe he'll just he was, yell at us. Uh, yeah, keep in mind he was the editor uh, at Fangoria as well. So kind of an interesting fellow. Yeah, definitely for sure, for sure. It should be a cool interview. So make sure you turn in for that. But I guess we should move on and get to the meat of things here. Myros, what terrible movie did you make me watch this week? Uh boy, I I was going for a a big bomb here. I I, I needed to strike back after last week, but uh, I don't know. I picked something called Cracker Jacked, which, uh, based on the trailer, looked like one of the worst things. I've found thus far, and, uh, well, uh, Amazon describes Cracker Jacked as, uh, Playa, Bling, Swole, Spliff, and Carlton are friends throwing a house party, despite the legend of a house party killing spree. Uh, while handing out party flyers, an overzealous white guy wants to be down with the crew, he dances in for the invite and drops the N-bomb and gets beat down. Uh, by nightfall, just as the party is in high gear, uh, the killing starts. Hmm. Is this the ultimate act of revenge? Wow. So, that's that's ex- What an intriguing premise. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> that pretty much sums it up, too. You know, it, it is. This is one of the more straightforward films that we've watched. Right. It I I'm a little disappointed. Again, this trailer is comprised of maybe like the three worst scenes in the entire film, uh which is that uh aforementioned beatdown 
and a woman on a toilet uh, with fart noises and boy, I don't even remember what else. There's something else in there that was just really egregious. Maybe it was that hot tub business. Hopefully not. Oh, God, but, I hope uh, not. <laughs> well, and those are two things that have done really well. So we found that if you know when we're going head to head like this, things that really throw you off, uh, throw me off as well, are garish visual effects. Specifically, the kinds that the kind that cause motion sickness, which you definitely see in the trailer with that beatdown scene, and uh, yeah, like fart noises, probably not great. <laughs> we we we've learned that with the Legend of Stank Mouth, where you know if if you got fart noises in your trailer, chances are not a great movie, not great. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I had high hopes for this. But the the fact is, it's it's kind of a slasher. The yep. end. <laughs> that's that's about it. Now, it isn't a competent slasher by any oh. means. There's a lot going on here, and I think the opening scene is is, is really something. So, <laughs> this this beatdown that takes place. So the, these guys are passing out flyers for their party, and. Uh, there's this like fat white guy in a FUBU jersey, and this was shot in 2003, so I guess that's <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty comical now, but I, I guess it was par for the course back then. And he just drops the end bomb multiple times, just throwing it out there, not in like a you know with a hard ER, but with an A to try and you know get to this party and be like, hey, invite me, I'm the the white guy that wants to be your friend. And they don't take too kindly to the use of the N-word, which is completely understandable. So they beat him down. And when they beat him down, uh, we definitely get one of those visual effects that made me physically ill for about 30 seconds because it's just this weird flashing camera blur effect when they stomp him and then the colors kind of change and get weird. Uh, And it goes on and on and on. It has... I think this movie was written in like iambic pentameter or something. Uh, I, <laughs> I I don't know why they insist on having like this lilting rhyme structure to everything, but they they cycle through this group of like four friends about probably three to four times each, and they they take turns uh, dropping a, a rhyming insult at this uh, white gentleman and. Uh, then kicking him in the face or something. And it just cycles through over and over and over. And it's like, oh, good God. I I was feeling okay at this point. Because then we transition to them heading to their house. And there is this fucking song. Uh, what is even the impetus of it? Someone has drank the Kool-Aid from the refrigerator? And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, the 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 nerdy fellow Carlton is uh, he's proffering mellow yellow as a substitute, and for some reason this incites an insane song uh, about how he likes his drank and his stank Kool Aid red, which I can't make heads or tails of it, but. Uh, Maybe it means something to you? I I don't know. Well, I I was a little confused at first because it sounds like he's uh he's just looking for a little a uh, little menstrual blood action there. 
Well, that wouldn't be the only time the movie goes in that direction. Uh (laughs) Aha, exactly. So I think that there's kind of an underlying obsession with uh, menstrual blood in this movie, which is, that's that's something. Didn't expect that. But yeah, he likes his his stank and his drank red. Who doesn't? We all love it. It's great. I just I don't, I don't even know. It's there's there's a lot of like rapping and and rhyming going on in this movie for some reason. There's a lot of, it's very Shakespearean in its execution. Right, that would be that would be a mystifying line, but this it's like a a 3 minute song break where he has verses and all sorts of things about how he wants his drank and stank Kool-Aid red. It just again, at this point I'm like, okay. Yeah. Okay. And there's a, there's another one. Uh, this one, I, guess, I don't know if it makes any more sense, but there's another rap sequence too, a little song break for us, where he talks about how he likes to marinate before he penetrates. Uh, so I that I don't I don't know what that is, but he likes to marinate. He just based his dick some fucking Worcestershire sauce or something. I I don't. There's something going on here. I got I no know. clue. What what is sex? I I've I, it's foreign to me. Uh, I think yeah. that this movie is, this movie taught me all I ever need to know. Um, <laughs> that's it. That's it, man. This is this is uh, it's like health class in seventh grade. You learn everything. I feel like this movie is a lot like the uh, 2018 indie smash uh, Blind Spotting, which also uh, features a lot of uh, lilting hip hop infused uh, dialogue and. Ooh. And it also deals with uh, some heavy racial implications from kind of both sides of the fence, as, as this movie inexplicably attempts to do in its last uh, two minutes. Where Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, I see your point, too, Mr. White Guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. We should all be comfortable in our own skins. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes these movies kind of have like uh, we have a theme, you know, and, and occasionally it's intentional. We did vampires that one time, and uh, we we got a theme coming for the next episode. We 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 have our themes. We did high budget with a special guest, Jake Trapila, so that's a thing. Uh, other times the themes just sort of emerge, and this week the theme seems to be bad politics and weed. That's about it. Oh, I was going to say that the the theme was was both sides. Both We're going to have to use baby. that uh, Van Hagar side. Oh, God. Yeah, um, the, theme, the theme this week is centrism. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. If we're if we're supposed to be learning about both sides, the, the answer from both of these films seems to be that both sides are equally reprehensible assholes. Yeah, that's that's all right. They don't they don't really do a great job of painting anything in a good light. It's it's fucking horrible. And before we get too much more into the, the story and the masterful execution in Cracker Jack, I had a bit of an issue with this movie. Well, I had a lot of issues with this movie, <laughs> but one in particular, and I don't know if it was something with my Amazon app or what was going on. But no, it I wasn't. A- I watched it in browser. It's the same shit. <laughs> okay, okay. This is a, a new one for caustic content, and... I, I think it's a new one for film in general. This is really breaking some 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 boundaries. Uh, this is going places where film has never gone before. I what aspect ratio is this in Myros? Because it's like baby widescreen. 
I, so it's it's kind of widescreen. I think it might be it might be sixteen by nine. <laughs> yeah, but for some reason, so it, it might be sixteen by nine, but there's black bars on the bottom and the side of the screen, and the movie's just in this little box in the middle of the screen for some reason, and I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't. I can't. I don't understand it. I wonder if it has something to do with like the fidelity of the copy that was uploaded or something of that nature. Yeah, like, that could be. It almost acted like the sort of thing. Like if you open a smaller file in a media player, and it doesn't want to enlarge to take up the whole screen. Like it wants to stay in its native resolution or something, which you know, it seems insane for a, a film that. You've shot and distributed. I don't know why yeah. you would have a copy that is not uh, capable of of a native resolution that would fill a computer screen. But uh, I I don't know. It, it's particularly strange because this movie at points looks just fine. There are some like shots in this movie that don't suck. Yeah. It's not a yep. terrible looking movie uh, as far as these things go. Mm-hmm. Like and there's that scene with the dominoes game where it's doing like this cut to – it's like a rotating camera that keeps like swinging between the, the guys. And it's like, oh, this looks like a real movie almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh, – there, there's a scene like that in Goodfellas and then they also use a similar camera technique in the show, that 70s show, whenever the – the kids were sitting around smoking weed around a table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like that. And the other thing to this movie's credit is, and I text you about this, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but it has this weird energy to it where none of these people are professional actors, not by a long shot. But no. they're they're so committed and into the role, like there's this passion that kind of shines through in what they're doing. Like they're really committed to this thing, and it certainly doesn't save the movie, but it makes it a lot more tolerable than it could be if it was just all wooden acting and and garbage. But yeah, there's something about this where something about these characters and these actors, it just. They have they have it. There's something. There's a there's a magnetism. It's dressed up in shit. It's a magnet covered in poo. But there's something there. And is, I was thinking, yeah. I, the the only thing I can compare it to, and this is not on the same level as this. Let me make that clear. Are you familiar, Myros, with any of the Dolomite movies with Rudy Ray Moore? Uh yes, yes, I'm familiar. Okay. So specifically, because as Rudy Ray Moore continued his film career i think his his movies got a little more high budget not by much but certainly he grew as a filmmaker and if you watch the original dolomite it is shot like trash and there's just boom mics like flying into the scene like there's there are at least a dozen boom mic shots <laughs> in the original dolomite but Rudy Ray Moore is such an amazing on-screen presence with his ridiculous shitty kung fu and his, like, I don't know, he does the same kind of, not rapping because this was the early 70s, but that same kind of whatever that is. You might call it jive in such an area. Yeah, I guess jive would be, that would be the, the term back then. And there's, there's something about it, and Rudy Ray Moore basically carries it. Now, none of these people have that kind of charisma that Rudy Ray Moore had as a comedian. So they can't quite do it. 
and they don't hit all the right notes for like a black exploitation film or even like the 90s iterations of that. So it doesn't really hit its Friday meets Friday the 13th lofty goals. But there's something here. I don't know what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I it is kind of inexplicable and it 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 does have something to do with the craft. It's not a terribly edited film. There are legitimate good shots even beyond the ones we've mentioned. And it, almost every line of dialogue in this film is either groan-inducing or uh, downright offensive. And yet still, for a good 40 minutes, I didn't hate the movie. It was inexplicable. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of weird. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I don't, I don't understand it, man. I also like it, it, cause this is, this is a favorite trope of mine from the eighties when they used to do this all the time with direct to video horror, uh, when they would, they would show something on the cover and then you'd, you'd rent the movie and you'd take it home and you'd be like, nothing on this cover is actually in this movie. And that's, that's pretty much the cover of Cracker Jack too. There's... <laughs> It's a, uh, it's a real charming, charming film. Like there's, there's a on the cover of Cracker Jack. There's like a a fat white guy in a like a crop top green t shirt, and he's got like carrot top hair. I suppose is the best way to describe it. And like sunglasses over a Jason hockey mask, and he's holding a chainsaw and a machete at the same time. It's just like I don't. That's not this at all. Because the killer in Cracker Jack, he's got the Jason mask. But other than that, he's just wearing, like, a black long sleeve shirt and black pants, right? Uh, you don't really get a good look, but he's certainly not uh, sporting midriff. Uh, yeah, where's his big also, white belly? Also, spoilers, he's, he's neither white uh, nor sporting a belly. Uh, well, I guess unless you believe that the odd stinger end, but uh, no, let's, let's, let's just call that the, the sequel tease. But... What is this thing in his belt loop? Is that a like a bone saw or something? <laughs> yeah, I was looking at that too, and I, I it looks like a, a carabiner, but if a carabiner was the size of like a, a microwave, it's just this big thing that's stuck in his pants. I don't know what that is, but hell of a cover and hell of a tagline too. White bread gone bad. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's that's something. Now most of this movie, Myros, is just this party that they're they're throwing right like so you've got these characters that live in this house and uh wait there they don't live there they're house sitting they're house sitting that's right it's kind of a it was that like a house party two house party three situation we got going on which is uh directly referenced in the film ah yeah uh, there you go yeah the old Classic. man the old restaurateur uh who's called like pops or something that that seems right pops uh he is. He calls him kid and play or some such thing, and yeah, does yeah. some sort of house party jig. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, this 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 is where some of the seams really start to show. I guess is that yeah. uh, there's some location issues going on with with this house party. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have no idea because it looks like they're in some like trashy college house. Yeah. And there's I don't I don't actually know who lives there and who doesn't because there's maybe like a half dozen characters plus the Carlton guy who's black but everybody makes fun of him because he acts too white and I don't know if he lives there too but nobody and lives then, there but nobody the lives there yeah so there's all these people who are house sitting but don't live in the house and Carlton who is their friend 
even though they're complete dicks to him. And then, but and it looks like a shitty college house. But then there's all these scenes outside where, oh, here's this scene where there's like a, a like a it looks like a really shitty one car garage that they have like a giant grill slash meat smoker in front of. Yeah. And then yeah. there's another outdoor shot where it looks like there's this big like glass window veranda thing, and then there's a huge pool and a hot tub. Right. But no one's no the, one's out there. How are and, you? How are you throwing this party and no one's around the pool? And let us also not forget. I, I I'm going to assume that the the veranda, the pool, and the third setting here, the weight room, are all part of a secondary location, which is either I don't know. It kind of reminded me of our apartment complex in Bakersfield. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what like I was thinking. A, uh, upper middle class uh, sort of apartment setup that has like faux resort trappings <laughs> or yeah, perhaps exactly. it was just a resort location that could be yeah. as well i i don't know but it certainly Either doesn't way, go sir, well with the with the no, shitty college house vibe no it doesn't make any sense <laughs> nothing nothing makes sense at all and then even like upstairs the bedroom situation is kind of weird too there's just this like I don't know. So the, the, there's the super sexy den bedroom with like cheetah sheets and candles everywhere, and I don't know. It's a real, it's a real red room of pain situation, <laughs> which seems specific to the character who is uh, using the bedroom. But it's certainly that character is not even part of the central group. Even if they did live in this house, which it's not purported that they do, that gentleman certainly does not live in the house. So no, I don't it, know why he doesn't. Have like a, it doesn't make a any fuck sense. Den or yeah. You gotta have you gotta have your uh, your fuck den at, at a stranger's house. That's just how it works. That's how it goes. Well, that whole sequence is rather troubling, but I, oh yeah, I, I think we should talk about that too because for me, there's two scenes that really stick out where it's just like, well, three the aforementioned uh, beatdown scene in the beginning, wow. but there's there's the scene in the old fuck den, okay, which the is old, the old I, cum covered <laughs> domicile, and it does this gag. That we've seen in horror movies before, uh, where someone is having sex, and then while they're having sex, there's this kind of like, uh, you know, the, the Michael Myers voyeuristic first person cam and spooky time music, and yeah, it's a little red herring action here, and you're like, oh look, he's the killer is coming to kill them while they're going to the bone zone, and then it turns out, oh, it's just his friend asking for rolling papers, ha ha, and then it does it again. And you're like, oh, here's the real kill. And it's like, nope, it's his friend coming back asking for a lighter. And then you're like, oh, ha ha. Now it's 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 a real gag here. And now the real kill is going to go. They do it like five more times. It's, it, it just it won't stop at and all. It, does, it doesn't help that his friend is this spliff character who's that that crew of people is, is not. Uh, not aged well 15 years into the future. It's a lot of uh, no. <laughs> faux shizzle business. A lot of words yeah. ending in izzle. Like yeah. every word. <laughs> three, fo- three fourths of the dialogue ends in izzle. It's it's not not really entertaining stuff this day and age, if it ever was. <laughs> if it ever was. That's, it's hard to say. It really is, you know. Uh, but time has not been kind to Cracker Jack. And well, and the other thing is, is not only do you have this gag repeating itself for like five fucking minutes, and this happens, God knows how many times, this back and forth. But in between, it's not like it's happening rapid fire. In between, we just see Spliff like just getting his pump on the whole time with his like 
glistening back and buttocks. Well, that's center not frame. Spliff. That's uh, I don't himbo, perhaps. Yeah, it's maybe the that's DJ. Spliff the DJ is the guy. man who keeps popping in and going like, "Yeah, hey, faux shizzle, do you have any papers? Like wallpaper?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, that it's like a gratuitous sex scene without any nudity. It's just like a strange, like ass crack, like violently thrusting into this woman for like. It's probably like three minutes. It's a long time. It's a long, long scene. Uh, we should we should go over the names of these people real quick. So the characters are Playa, uh, Bling Bling, Swole, who he's the muscle guy. That's easy. Right. Playa is the main character, the guy who likes it Kool-Aid red. Swole is the muscle man. Yeah. Spliff is the guy with the afro who likes weed. Sure. Uh, Carlton is the guy that they think is too white. Uh, yes. There's an, there's another person named Izzle who seems to be Spliff's friend. I would and that, I would imagine. Yeah, based on their dialogue. Uh, and the fact that his name is Big Pump Rogers, I'm guessing he might be the the Reuben Stuttered sort who has that yeah. uh, nice song near the end. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Himbo, and uh, that seems to be the main crew, from what I what I can gather here. And then uh, uh, the white the white guy who's wannabe. That's what they call him, right? No, I believe the white guy is. Oh wait, maybe he is. I. It's hard to tell I, with this one, you know. It's because there's also a character credited as Cracker Jack. Yeah, which and there's is what also... they call him throughout the movie. Uh, and yeah, so I don't know. And he's he he's certainly a, uh, the only person who has a picture on IMDb. It is is a rather hefty gentleman. So yeah, I'm not certain. Could be. Who knows? Who knows? And the women are treated well here too. Uh, if you remember, the the two women, the two main characters are baby girl and old girl, <laughs> which I thought was pretty amazing. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's great. A lot but of thought n- into neither that. of those is the one who had the. The long segment discussing her her period. No, no, and that's that's the scene that happens. So, around the time that we got all the the bone zone action going on here, and, and keep in mind while this is happening, uh, the titular Cracker Jack is is going around cutting people's throats and whatnot. So people are getting killed at this party. Laughably, by the way, as much as I might say some of this movie looks pretty good, there's also. Yeah. Scenes like Pop's death, which look like looks just beyond amateur hour. Yeah, I, I will. Say there's there's one good kill. By good, I mean it's not good. I think it's the first kill where a guy gets his throat cut and he's he's bleeding everywhere. But instead of just dying instantly, he's just like crying out for help. And then this, some woman comes out and she's like, "Oh, I got to call for help." He's like. Uh, no, I just need a cigarette. And then she, like, gives him a cigarette and starts to walk away. He's like, I need a light. And then she goes to, like, light his cigarette, but it falls out of his mouth. He's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I See, actually this is the kill the I'm talking came. about. I mean, it is kind of the post-kill, like, prolonged death is, is kind of a funny gag. But the, the kill itself where Cracker Jack comes behind him with, like, the most plastic Halloween store machete of all time and just, like, puts oh, yeah. it up to his neck and they don't even bother putting a makeup effect in and just cut away and then uh, cut back like 30 seconds later after another scene in the film. And now he has like a some red paint splashed on his neck. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. It's, it's real, real high quality stuff. 
So and that then, sex scene we were discussing as well, that yeah. that is quite the the insane like I I could not tell you what was supposed to be happening in that kill. It made zero sense. And it's kinda of dark in the room, it's not lit particularly well, so I'm like, did did he like break records over their necks? And I they think that died? is what is supposed to have happened. I could not it took me like thirty seconds to register that those were supposed to be records. Well, I mean, Cracker Jack, it's a thinking man's film, so that makes sense. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> What's happened here? Yeah, right? That's, uh, uh, it's something, man. It makes man. N- no, no sense at all. And no. I mean, not that, you, not that you could smash a record over someone's head and kill them anyhow, but just yeah. the, the manner in which it happens is, is visually confusing, to say the least. Yeah, not great. Not great at all. And uh, you know, the, and the other scene that we would be remiss if we did not discuss is uh, the uh, corpse, but it isn't a corpse blowjob scene. Do you want to paint a picture of that one for us? So this also is where the the burrito farting comes into play. Uh, baby, is it baby girl or is it old girl? Uh, I, I don't know. They're interchangeable at this point. I think but- I think it's old girl. Uh, we're going to go with old girl. She, uh, is, is hooking up with our main character, our protagonist, Playa, uh, and they deem to go off to this, uh, adjacent resort, uh, in the backyard. So they, uh, head off to the hot tub and, uh, for whatever reason, the, there's like a bathroom break. Uh, before they get down to hot tubbing, and thereby she is sitting on the toilet uh, having a grand time uh, disposing of the burrito she consumed earlier. Uh, And he is... (laughs) Disposing of the burrito. He is accosted by our murderer and and presumably drowned in the hot tub. Uh... Seemed like an interesting decision at the time. I'm like, wow, who's the protagonist in this movie? (laughs) Um, Right? Exactly. So she is is muttering about how horned up she is. uh, And she comes out of the bathroom and sees him face down. And (laughs) it takes her a while, but she eventually recognizes that he's been drowned. And... Then, uh, all of a sudden, it cuts down to his, his swim trunks where he's sporting, like, a, a comical, like, 18-inch rod jutting out from his, his crotch. And uh, so you're, you're like, okay, this is going to go somewhere disgusting, obviously. But one would think it could have gone in a more uh, a feminist-angled, uh, d- a disgusting direction, I suppose. Couldn't she... I mean, you would think that the, the, where this is headed is she wants to get herself off with this giant, turgid dick. Uh, <laughs> corpse be damned. But yeah, instead, exactly. instead, she just proceeds to uh, to fillet the, the penis for uh, probably... Forever. Well, I mean, it's probably... Not that it's continuous, but it just kind of keeps cutting back to it over the next, let's say, 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. Yeah, just pop in and it's, she's going it's to great town too. on this dick. <laughs> it's great too because before before she goes down on the dick, she like looks at the camera and winks too, and she's like, "Yeah, I'm about to suck a, a big old dead guy penis." It's like fucking Toad from Mario Kart zooming right into her mouth. 
uh, <laughs> well, that's a particularly relevant uh, news item. Here, we we keep it keep it topical here. We keep it topical. <laughs> I think people will know what day we recorded this. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I what I don't know what I'm supposed to make of this scene. I it, I I guess the the joke is that she blows him back to life. That ends yeah. up being the joke. But why would she be sucking his dick in this scenario? For what I, possible reason? I this don't is not, know. This is not solving her horniness issue. She's uh, just blowing a, a corpse's dick. And it, it makes yeah. no sense. It, it is – it reads as tremendously misogynistic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely does. It definitely does. As and does the the bulk of this film. The bulk that, of the that's film. That's that's a theme. Loses. Yeah, it's kind of ongoing, and it's right. just like it's so embedded in the film that it's just. I don't want to say it's barely noticeable, but it's just it's constantly there. It's like when you have a headache, but it's not like this throbbing pain. It's just like a dull pain of misogyny that just rolls over the whole thing. It's ah, uh, that's something. It's something. Well, now, yeah, and again, it's not like these. As much as this movie has its odd. Like charms, and, and I don't even know if that's the word I'd use. It's it's not charming per se, but it, it does sort Perversely of like, watchable at times. Yeah, it lulls you in. It's very watchable. It's not it's not offensive in the way that a lot of these things are, but it, it's offensive in content. But not it's not offensive to the senses. We'll say it. Uh, it's a tremendously watchable film for the most part, and it yeah. is. Yeah, but it, the misogyny goes hand in hand because none of these characters are remotely likable, not intelligent, just vulgar at, at every turn. Uh, yeah, and and another uh, through line with the two films we watched uh, would be that it is uh, – both of the films are just about characters who are consumed exclusively with, with sex and uh, marijuana. Yep. That's about it. That's that's primary motivations. Uh, but hey, I mean that that, that that kind of uh, <laughs> that ties in nicely with our next film too. So that's nice. Now, Myros, can we before we move on to our, the next film, I do want to talk about the ending of this because it's it's revealed at some point that. Um, Carlton? Carlton. Carlton is the killer because they had been bullying him, so he was going around. And it makes sense because Carlton was with them when they were at Pop's restaurant, and Pop's was talking about how when he was young, how there was a guy that came to a party and killed a bunch of people and yada yada. So it makes sense that it's Carlton. And it's his big reveal. And then in another comical display of terrible special effects, uh, Carlton is shot down in a blaze of glory by the cops who despite the fact that there's this giant raging party where people are being murdered, uh, they, they show up about like an hour late. So really this film is an indictment of our of our police force in America. Wait, uh, I don't think he ever got through to the cops. No, but, but the, he, cops, the cops show up though, right? Right, yeah. I wondered how that came. Well, I guess there is like a, a scene at some point where the, everyone's running out of the house screaming, perhaps that alerted the police or someone called them. But yeah. I don't if this could even be called a reveal like I it's not a real mystery to me. I mean the guy disappeared from the film after like 20 minutes and it's like, well, obviously this is fucking where it's going. Mhm. Yeah. It's not going to be the the fat white guy from the beginning that would not make narrative sense. So 
you just kind of knew sure. that was going to happen. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the thing at the end is just it's so fucking stupid. And before the little stinger, where uh, the fat white guy they they have this little, like friendly embrace and. Playa is like, oh, wow, like, we're so sorry that we thought you were a murderer. And the fat white guy's like, it's okay, blah, blah, blah. And then they have this this little exchange of dialogue where I'm just like, God damn it, I hate this. Uh, <laughs> we all got to be comfortable in our own skin, man. Yeah, we got we to gotta learn to be colorblind. That's what he says. I'm just like, fuck you. What, fuck? Also, fuck this white guy. <laughs> like, yeah. what the fuck? He doesn't. He doesn't deserve to go to this party. Like, what? What makes him think that he's just because he fucking exists? He gets to go to their party. Fuck you, white guy, dropping the n bomb. Go get curb stomped again. But nope, we gotta. It's both sides time. So that's Cracker Jack, baby. Wait, you <laughs> forgot that they, they at the very last possible oh, God, incident yeah. of the movie implicated the uh, the white guy as a potential. Second party to the murders, I guess. Yeah, because he turns around and he's wearing this backpack, and for some reason, the the Jason hockey mask is just like three fourths of his jutting out of his backpack, like whoa, and then Playa's like whoa, and then the movie just you know fade to credits, which is just kind of a, a traditional like shitty slasher ending. So uh, yeah, I'll pretty give much. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll give we'll give that one a pass. It's real fucking dumb because there's no way that you could connect those dots to make that work but yeah sure whatever fuck it that's cracker jacks <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts like just just overall on this one <sighs> it's a bad movie but it's it's not i don't know it's it's in the top to the top portion of what we've seen for this show i think it's again surprisingly competent at times and it does have a certain amount of care put into it and as much as it's it's dialogue is is 95% abhorrent and uh, grating to the ear uh, it is it is overall a, a, a tolerable movie mm-hmm. uh, if yeah. we're going to give it the old designation of curiosity or atrocity I'm almost tempted to say curiosity on this one curiosity yeah I, I would agree with that one this was a curiosity for me now, something that was most certainly not a curiosity, uh, the only thing I'm curious about with our next movie is why this director doesn't exist on the internet and well, why... Well, I think he may have been stoned to death. That'd be my guess. <laughs> possibly run out of town, something like that. My God. And I knew this. I knew this going in, that this was going to be bad. But I, I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to be over two hours long. I didn't really think about that until it happened. This is another one where it took me three sittings to get through this, and it was painful. I could have I could have broken this up into ten like increments of watching, and it, it still would have been too much. Uh, this movie is called The Remedy, and I'm going to tell you all about The Remedy. It is a, <laughs> according to the Amazon description. Oh Jesus, fuck! It's a perfect description, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, a wannabe liberal musician and a conservative college dropout sell weed all over town while arguing political and societal issues at a high level of intelligence. And then it says, the smartest indie movie ever made. Yes, yes. 
I now, don't know if, if whoever wrote that understands what an independent film is, because that's a pretty lofty fucking claim. I don't, I don't think they know what smart is. And, well, uh, certainly not. And this movie, now in another movie, you could say, oh, it's the smartest indie movie ever made, and you'd be like, ha, 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 it's self-aware, it knows it's dumb, and oh, it's saying that because it's dumb. <sighs> this movie is 100% not self-aware, and it most certainly believes that it is the smartest indie movie ever made. No, no question about it. And uh, the IMDb description isn't too much better. Uh, it says, two intellectual partisan stoners ponder life, women, religion, sex, spirituality, diet, upbringing, personal responsibilities, war, and more while coming of age in our modern mythical world. Holy shit. Directed and written by Tiger Ashbeck, who doesn't exist on the internet, which is a shame. Holy uh, that also, shit, he, dude. Let us keep in mind that he also... Uh... He also wrote that summary on IMDb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he certainly did. I, that's not oh. written by a random user. That's what the director has to say about this whole thing. Um, uh, which, if you click through, there's a little bit more to it too. Which, uh, yeah, after they're uh, well, they're coming of age in our modern mythical world that spares everyone the truths of life in favor of sensibilities and fear. They skewer false media to find the truth while they play video games, sell weed grown on Che Guevara's grave, adventure, and grow. They break through it all in what is a turning point in their lives and the most important week of their early 20s. Nobody, okay, no one grows, nothing Nothing happens. This is I don't think anyone's in their early 20s either. <laughs> no, these guys are all like 35 and they're fucking idiots. This is, uh, okay. If, if you're going to describe what the remedy is in the broadest sense, first of all, it's two hours and 22 minutes long, which is obscene. Uh, and it is basically a no-talent fucking moron who really likes Richard Linklater. Uh, we're talking like Slackers and... Um, or Slacker and... Uh, oh, what's the other one? Waking Life. Okay. Yes. Well, so these, these apes big... that style for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's got kind of the meandering nature of slacker, um, but with a more like focused is not a word I want to use here. <laughs> a more a more linear narrative that might be associated with like a waking life, I guess. And well, it also has waking life is famously in that rotoscope st- style, which is mimicked via like. I don't fucking know. Final Cut Pro filter or something here. It looks like dog shit. It is not rotoscope. It's just garish. Yeah, no. They literally just went in like After Effects and threw on like a piece of shit filter that made everything look like a a sponge was fucking brushed over it. It just looks like complete shit. Yeah, it uh, is beyond horrible. I, I can't even begin to to talk about it. it's it's eye cancer is what it is. It's it's fucking terrible. Well, uh, I, uh, if the visuals were the worst part of this film, then we'd, no, they, we'd yeah, all be not, having though. a fucking great day. Now, uh, keep in mind, too, when I talk about Slacker and Waking Life, uh, Richard Linklater later is, a, is an amazing filmmaker. He's won Oscars. Um, you know, you got the Before Trilogy. You got Boyhood. You got all these these films that he's done uh, that are, are, by all accounts, masterpieces. And still, with that in mind, I really do not like Waking Life, and I don't like Slacker very much. No, this is not a format that I've ever enjoyed. Uh, no, so I don't think particularly that... enjoy the rotoscoping fascination either. But uh, more of this sort of like 
conversations throughout town, like just aimless narrative. It it's not for me. It never has been. I I think Slacker no. is a difficult movie to, to sit through. For yeah, me. and I think I think the Before trilogy works because one, the two leads are incredible, and they have this great chemistry. And the dialogue, while it is kind of like meandering and wandering and everything, there's this focus, and it all relates back to their relationships and their philosophies, and and it kind of like, it just works. It gels, because you have these two uh, great actors that are, or actor and actress that are are working together, basically at the top of their game. And that's why it works. And you get invested. Yeah, Yeah, you you are spending three entire movies with these two characters and getting to know them and their views and their relationships. Whereas you look at something like... Like Slacker, you're getting to meet uh, 75 characters in the span of, of one movie, and you really yeah. don't get to know anything about them. Just a, no. a few uh, pretentious uh, sentences they want to sputter out, and yeah. that again, it's just it it is an influential film, uh, but it's not not for me. No, and this is just it is so meandering, and and when I say nothing happens, I truly truly mean. That nothing happens in this movie. You have, and on top of that, you have the two worst fucking characters ever written in the history of film. So this is like, it's stoner centrism, the movie, basically. So you have this one guy who is like vaguely liberal and one guy who is like vaguely conservative, but only in like random spurts. Like they just seem like stoner idiots that I don't want to be around at all who are just like, let's smoke weed and then say something terrible about women. And you're like, oh, great. Yeah. And then every once in a while, they'll be like, yeah, like the conservative guy's just, man, I hate the poor. And then the other guy will be like, yeah, but if you were a vegetarian, you'd be a better person. And it's just, it's every political conversation that makes me cringe just happening all at once, never stopping. It's endless. Yeah, there is no political discourse in this film. Uh, no, it's just people talking at each other. It's right, insane. and and they're not like making cogent points to represent their respective viewpoints either. Not to say I, I think that especially the the quote unquote right wing fellow has a, <laughs> a cogent viewpoint to offer, but uh, not, not really neither person does. So to call them intellectual stoners, I've met some intellectual stoners. These are these are not intellectuals. They're fucking frat boy drug dealer assholes. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then it doesn't make any sense to me either because I guess all of these people are terrible in their own special ways and they all deserve each other. But my God, why do these people want to spend any amount of time with each other? They're all fucking miserable pricks. And again, not in a fun or interesting way. They're just insufferable. They're people I don't want to be around. Yeah, they're I all, mean, what's they're all the, fucking <laughs> disgusting. What's the basic uh, through line of this movie is that uh, a lot of people in their acquaintance group keep uh, dying of opiate overdoses, and I'm like, boy, if these were my fucking friends, then pass the goddamn Vicodin. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I yeah, if if I had to be surrounded by these people, and I was just some jobless idiot sitting on a fucking couch all day, then yeah, I would fucking, I would guzzle a bottle of Oxycontin immediately. This is just, <laughs> holy shit. And the fact that this guy is, and, and it's the complacency too. It's like they don't really give a fuck. 
They don't give a fuck about anything at all. They don't do anything meaningful to help their friends, even though at some point in the movie, they're like, man, all of our friends also have these pill problems that we don't care about. And then the conservative guy, how do you even let this guy in your fucking house? The things that he says, like just racial slurs and homophobic slurs, and he's just shouting them out left and right. (laughs) And the best that our liberal stoner can muster up is like, dude, come on, man. Like that's that's it. That's that's it. There's no there's no pushback. There's no nothing. There's nothing at all. Cuff, we need to listen to both sides of this fucking. Oh my god, fucking both sides (laughs) of the movie. It is infuriating. This is what this both sides shit drives me fucking insane to political discourse. No, bad. This is the two worst part. This is like this is like a bad Twitter timeline. You have insano conservative pile of shit, and then you have like just uh, you know centrist liberal do nothing who's just like yeah whatever man you know they're not so bad these conservatives like no fuck you your complacency empowers these idiots. You yeah. are a part of the fucking problem, and uh, and it's not addressed, ever. Well, this guy's also a part of the problem because he doesn't have any fucking legitimate beliefs. What is his fucking point about any of this? When he's confronted about homosexuals, we get some screed about how the gay gene does not fucking exist. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and let, let's talk about that. a choice, and, and then we have this fucking phone call where he's like, all right, man. We're going to go see my black friend. And, of course, the tiger Ashbeck's never met a black person in his life. So no, we just have a phone call a of, some, of some white guy going like, hey, man, uh, yeah, I want all the weed, and but I can't because my girlfriend needs to pay for an abortion. And then the woman's like, hey, I need an abortion, but I also need that fat welfare check. And I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) Fuck. Can I buy a bag of weed with my food stamps? It's like, what the? Yeah, it's it's insane. It's like some (laughs) twisted conservative idea of like what a black person is in America. And it's just played fucking straight. It's yeah, nuts. It's, not it's completely addressed. fucking bonkers. And when we talk about how they how they discuss homosexuals in this movie, that's another one too. There's another call to a gay guy, and he's just like, "Oh hey." And there's another part where I I don't know. There's all these like jaunts that they go on where they just they have to have sex all the time, so they're constantly trying to lure women like fucking predators. And they go to like meet some women to bang them, and it just turns out to be like a. a trans woman just standing on a street corner and she's like hi and they're like so there's this like weird 10 minute excursion into transphobia and when we talk about this this gay gene thing that they they have a discussion regarding this is insane so whenever you watch a movie you know there's there's constantly characters that you'll encounter that are abhorrent and it's it's tough as someone trying to be critical of media because you're like, well, you know, how how does this relate back to the director himself and maybe his his own ethos or, or what he believes in? And it, it can be hard, but like what you have to do is you have to see how the movie treats them. Does the movie like empower these characters and, and how, how are they treated in the film? And in this movie... And this is another commonality, too, with these terrible fucking films that we watch. There's director interjections. Early on, it's something as simple as, like, someone clearly flubs a line and they don't cut it out. And then at the bottom, it's like, LOL, he said the wrong line. It's like, God damn, why did you do that? And But this, he, he says this, and it just fades to a black screen with, like, white Times New Roman text. And it's like, 
yo, turns out that homosexuality is a, a, a choice or something you're born with. It's not just something that you're you're born liking men. It's it's this, that, and the other thing. And at the bottom, it's like, source, Wikipedia and WebMD. And I'm like, holy fuck, you are... It's insane. And this is from 2013, but it's I swear to God, it's like reading my 2018 Twitter timeline. I want to fucking shoot myself in the fucking head repeatedly. Yeah, and even beyond that, it like it goes to this like full page text wall about how the the person who discovered the gay gene is now admitted that it's not real. It's like what? Okay, Jesus Christ, is this fucking yeah. Alex yeah. Jones's? Yeah, remedy Alex or what? Jones is the editor. <laughs> it's just it's fucking nuts. It is completely abhorrent. And on top of all that, it's got terrible politics, terrible dialogue. It looks like shit. It has the audacity to be two and a half fucking hours long. I, everything about this is infuriating. And it is, it's crazy, too, because it's so anger-inducing and yet so fucking boring. So boring. There's, there's three camera setups in the entire movie. There's the camera setup where people are sitting on a couch talking. There's the camera setup where people are sitting at their local bar talking. And then there's the camera set up in the car. And all you get is that. That's it. You either get a couch shot, you get a car shot, or you get a bar shot. That's fucking it. There's nothing visually interesting. The dialogue is shit. It does the other thing that I hate in these fucking movies where uh, just loud music is just playing in the background and it, it, it just muffles the terrible dialogue. Maybe that's a good thing in this instance. I don't know. But every single aspect of this is just like, fuck you. And on top of that, it takes itself so fucking seriously. This guy thinks he is God's gift to film and he is trash his politics are trash his filmmaking skills are trash he is a giant dumpster man yeah and I, I don't even him. know if he thinks he's god's gift to film he thinks he's god's gift to fucking america and so there's clearly the left wing gentleman is clearly like author surrogate you know this is the the sure. voice of reason the filmmaker's absolute truth and he is speaking from this position of authority that only like a fucking 20 year old nitwit could possibly speak with who's, who's got it all the fuck figured out he's experienced all he needs to he gets it man and fucking so he's speaking from this left-wing point of view every time we're actually confronted with something problematic we're confronted with this discussion about homosexuality. He doesn't push back on it fucking at all. His his conservative pals like, hey, every homosexual I've ever met is a fucking psychological wreck and a, a waste of life. And he just he doesn't even push back on the whole fucking thing. He's just like, nah, no. I don't think so, man. And then and then we have this fucking screed about the the gay gene. So it's like obviously the director is harboring some problems with these people, and that's not fucking okay, especially when you're espousing to be some progressive. And the same thing with, with African Americans. God, that phone call is fucking poison. And yeah. and not to mention this rapper who he's, like, producing a song for, and all he's there for is he just comes in and... He just says a bunch of unintelligible rap lyrics, and they're like, hey, man, you sound like a big fag, man. And it's like, oh, 
God. Yeah, like that's an actual lie. It's like your rapping's kind of gay. Like you do, like you say stuff and it sounds gay. It's like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah, there's there's nothing and nothing is challenged. And even there's like throwaway lines that are just like, what the fuck did you just say? And no one addresses it. There's another one about um because you know, the conservative guy, all you can think about is like fucking. And he's like, well, Yeah, I was gonna bang guys, this chick. <laughs> well, yeah, that's both guys. All both guys can only think about fucking. The conservative guy's like, Yeah, I got this chick and I wanna fuck her and she's real hot, but she's a Muslim and I can't fuck a Muslim. And then the the liberal guy's just like, oh, why not? And he's like, because she's a Muslim. And he's like, yeah. Like, that, that's the fucking, that's the discourse. That's it. It's disgusting. Right. He's like, but are Muslims any better than, or worse than Christians? So basically this fucking idiot is a homophobic racist who is uh, also a vegan. And in point of, fil- again, another line of dialogue is, is he just goes... Well, vegans are are just—they're smarter. They're intellectually superior to to everyone else. And then there's like another fucking text intrusion that's like fact. <laughs> vegans yeah. are smarter. It's just so here. It's like what the fuck, Christ? Why yeah. don't you die in a fire? So he's basically this guy who's still harboring a lot of fucking terrible beliefs. Uh, whether he was raised with them, uh, probably, but he's now he's now decided that. Uh, Christianity is for dumb dumbs, and meat is murder. But you know, I'm still, I'm still gonna fucking harbor these disgusting beliefs about women and uh, homosexuals and African Americans. Exactly. And he's he's that, supposed to be this but, like this foil, right? But all he does is he's just as terrible as the conservative guy. But he just practices these politics of civility where he refuses to confront anything. And then that's supposed to be virtuous in the eyes of the film. And it's like, no, the only way that any of this would be, I don't think it'd be ever tolerable, but it'd be like, oh, if you point out the fact that it's like, no, both these guys fucking suck. But it doesn't. The film doesn't do that at all. It, it, if anything, it says, yeah, both guys are kind of good in their own special way. It's like, no, they're fucking blow. This movie fucking blows. This movie is a complete fucking atrocity. No, this movie does not for one instant interrogate its characters. It does not wish for you to view them as flawed. The the, the liberal character is supposed to be a, a voice of God. You know, he is he's fucking spouting the truth, man. What is this even what was the subtitle of this film? I I wish I could pull it up. Uh oh, it was God, called I don't like, even know. It was called like The Remedy Based on the Real Facts Man or something like that. It, that's like <laughs> the actual title of the film. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so I I man it, and oh I guess another thing he's he's out about is war. Uh you gotta you gotta fucking end the war, man. What a deep fucking thought. You've, you really fucking changed the way I, I view the world now that you've told me that war isn't great, you fuckwit. Yeah, it's and, it's pretty great, man. Uh, support the troops more like support the poops. We don't need war. That's It's great. So All the fucking stuff. end coda of the movie, like after it's over, of course we get another text wall of nonsense that's like, if we cut military spending... We could 
uh, have better border security and pay down the national debt. I'm like, that's about fucking right. That's what you would do with the money we'd save from fucking pulling out of foreign wars. You fucking yeah. asshole. <laughs> Who gives exactly a shit it. about border security or the national debt? <laughs> that's that's the beauty of it because this like 2013 fucking John Kerry sticker on my bong liberal, his politics are basically like Trump politics. Like, Oh, like let's let's stay out of foreign wars, but also build a wall to keep brown people out, and that is bad, and that's that's it. It's like I don't actually care about human beings. Fucking trash. This is this is something. All right. Well, I, so, I think we we both agree this this one is full stop, complete atrocity. Am yeah, I right? I do want to briefly talk about again the main plot of the film is that they have this. Uh, one of their let's say there's like he's probably the third member of this. Uh, power trio of fucking complete asshats, and he—they—they're not speaking to him because he's uh, kind of gone off the deep end. He's not just dealing pot, man. Now he's dealing pills. Ah, and so the movie ends with uh the guy fucking OD and he calls them and they just don't answer the phone and they're like fuck that guy he's a fucking piece of worthless shit man and they're like well he died and like, so you think that would be like a revelatory moment like oh god instead they're like fuck it guy wasn't worth breathing the air man he he deserves to die i'm like what in the fuck is this moral <laughs> This guy's your fucking friend, and he's a drug addict, and he dies, and you're like, ah, fucking good. Too bad he's gonna poison the soil with his rotten corpse. Yeah, it's it's great. It's wonderful. Love it. This movie is... uh, It's... I will say, again, it's... It's it's probably, for me, it was more watchable than a lot of things. It was never, like... Confounding. It's just, it's just like a shitty play or something. But fucking goddamn, man, this is a poison pill. <laughs> yeah, it's the absolute worst. It, I, I feel significantly dumber from watching it, and just angry. My blood is boiling. It's bad. Uh, so. yeah, yeah. So fucking yeah. Christ, fuck. Fuck, yeah, well, atrocity. Uh, yeah, atrocity. So, you know, normally we have a little, you know, back and forth here to kind of decide which one's which, but this is another episode where I, I think it's pretty pretty safe to say the Remedy wins this week. Yeah, shocking. I I, I really thought this was going to go my way, but eh. even after watching the Remedy, I'm like, okay, I can still see a way to victory, but as it's like sat in my mind for a couple days... Fuck, you win, man. You win. Yeah. I think I've been good at picking those two that it's like, this is really bad, and the longer you let it marinate in your head, you're like, what the fuck? You know? Uh, it's it's yeah. like you gotta you gotta let the movie marinate before it penetrates, really. That's, that's what it comes down to. All right, uh, Myra. I'm seeing I'm seeing Kool-Aid red right now, man. Yeah, yeah. You would be both. Uh what does I put our score at, by the way? I, I believe you've taken your very first lead. Uh, All right, you are up four to three, and we have two draws in the in the mix here too. All right, four three two. I'm up, baby. I'm up. We got to keep it going. And what are we doing for next week, Myros? Uh, we're going back to the theme. Well, uh, we're gonna talk. I know that the remedy would have you believe. Oh, by the way, what does the remedy mean? I, I don't know what the remedy means. Uh, I, I think uh, that Tiger Ashbeck thinks that he's like uh, fucking M. Night Shyamalan in, in that uh, Lady in the Water, and this movie is the remedy for what ill society. 
I think that's what he believes. But Perhaps. you know what? The the closest I could get out of the movie is that the, the remedy is is the opiate crisis. Uh, yeah, that's about all I can come that's up with. That's it. I, like, well, I think it is because it seems to be taking care of these characters that I can't fucking stand. So it's, yeah, it works it's, for me. Yeah, thank God bless the opiate crisis because it would be the only escape in the hell that this world posits. Yeah, that's pretty uh, great. Anyway, we are doing uh, because the remedy uh, convinced me to maybe go back to church because if this guy hates. Uh, Hates religion. Maybe there's something to it. Um, Re-embrace your Catholicism. The time is now. So we're going to take a look at some faith-based films. I uh, just found something, I think. Uh, I think it might be uh, good-bad, but, well, if it's... If it's good-bad, that'll be fine. I've had a rough couple weeks with this project, so... But maybe it'll surprise and be... uh, Bad enough to win. So I'm going to go with a little film called Challenge of Faith. Ooh, exciting. Exciting. Uh, and, you know, my faith-based films, and I looked at a few of them, and one of them I picked out initially, but then I realized that I would probably run into a, uh, a love on a leash situation from one of our earlier episodes where it is incredibly bad but also fucking hilarious. Uh, there was a movie that I found, it was called like The Testament or something like that, but it's some like dark future dystopia where uh, like religion is outlawed or something like that. It has Mr. T in it. And in, in the trailer, there's a woman and they're, they're doing like a court case. And there's like an actual line in the trailer. You got to look this up. Uh, the woman just goes, I'd like to call Jesus Christ to the stand. And then I just fucking like <laughs> cry laughed for five minutes. <laughs> I think that might go this route, but, w- yeah. but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So I didn't want to go with that because that might be too good, but that might be something I watch on my own just because Mr. T plus calling Jesus Christ to the stand is pretty awesome. Uh, instead, I decided to uh, go with something that I think will push a lot of Adam Myros buttons, and I know Myros doesn't like children in films, and uh, I-, I don't think the 9-11 films really speak to you, so I have found a movie called Angels in Our Midst about a child who is traumatized by the death of his parents uh, after 9-11. They die in the towers. And then he's got a guardian angel who takes care of him. And based on the cover, he also has a terrible haircut. So there you go. Children, 9-11, guardian angels. What else do you need in the world, really? Uh, is there Della Reese? I could use I, that. I hope. If Della Reese pops in, I'm going to lose automatically. She's a <laughs> fucking gift. Anyway, so yeah, I look forward to that next week. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to the iTunes page for Optimism Vaccine. And there's a link to that in the description of this very podcast that you are listening to. Just give that a little click. Give us five stars and a written review. That'll really help out our visibility. And the more visible we are, the more fabulous content we can create for you because more people will be listening. And uh, yeah, it'll just you know give us a kick in the pants to do more shit. Also, you can check us out on the internet. You can tweet us at Optimism Vaccine, or you can tweet me at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. And you can't tweet Myros because he's not on Twitter because he values his sanity. And I'm living in the remedy world, baby. You can also email us, OptimismVaccine at gmail.com. And uh, the real question on our mind is, uh, where is, what's his name again? Tiger Ashworth, Tiger Ali Singh. What is his name? Ashback, Tiger Ashback, where are you? We don't know where you are on the internet. We know nothing about you. I don't want to talk to you 
personally, but I'd, I'd love to tell you, fuck you, because this movie fucking sucks, and you're probably an yeah. asshole. You know what? I, we'll have a discourse with Ty Grash, but it, it won't be civil, but, uh, yeah. you know, have at it. You seem, it's, to, it's you like, seem to be willing to hear both sides. Well, he, probably, you know. he probably created this under a pseudonym, and now he's writing, like, op-eds for the National Review or something, or fucking Reason <laughs> Magazine. I don't even know. Fuck you. Anyways, that pretty much wraps up the show, but... Make sure you stick around. We have an interview coming up with Chris Alexander, who was the director of Blood Dynasty and many other horror films. Uh, he also has a pretty robust music career, and he spent some time at Fangoria. So we got a review with er, a review, an interview with him coming up after this. And this is the first time for the podcast where we're actually going to get to talk to people that made uh, made a movie that was on our podcast. That's amazing. This is big time, baby. So stay tuned for that. And that about wraps things up. We're back with that promised interview. Uh, unfortunately, Steve is is gone for the evening. We're we're having some technical difficulties, so I uh, am handling this. Uh, you'll have to deal with the less charismatic of the two of us. But uh, I think our guests will bring enough of that to the table. Uh, we are joined by, as as promised, the director of Blood Dynasty, one of the films we've covered on this podcast, uh, Chris Alexander. Uh, how are you doing tonight, Chris? I'm I'm most excellent. Thank you. It's you know, it, you know, I, I'm happy to have at least one of you on the phone. So that's 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 okay. I'm I'm okay with that. Well, if you want to hurl any insults at Steve, he uh, no, he I'm, I'm not at all, not at all. Listen, I I, I heard your I, you know we're here together for because I heard your show, and and I was I laughed my ass off. You know, I I thought it was well. We can talk if you really want to get into it. We can, but uh, I mean, I, I your points are entirely valid. So and, and funny and well presented. You know, what I really liked about your, your response was you're articulate. You know, and I think that's what I appreciate the most. I know the things I do in every respect are never designed to be embraced by everybody. Uh, but I've always hated, not just in my own work, but of all art, I've always had dismissive criticism without being informed. And you guys were, you know, your stuff. You're very witty and you're articulate and 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 i appreciated it the only issue i had with any of things that you said about anything that i do is that you cited this awful bullshit website as mine (laughs) and that wasn't what it was was and it's gone now thankfully because i had to rage against the server when i found out that this thing existed this was an old site of mine that had gone i let die and uh somebody out there grabbed grabbed it and represented it as that mutated muck version that ended up online. I didn't even know it was there. So yeah, I had to I had to I had to make sure that my that I piped in a little bit and said, you know what? All the things you say, it's that's cool, that's fine. But that ain't my site. Please God, I can't have that as my epitaph. I must pipe in and clear clear the air on, on that horrible, horrific barf site. 
Yeah, well, that explains one of the great mysteries of the uh, of the strange uh, pixelated thumbnails. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what, and then it's like it was this bizarre mush at the top, and it's like this is an in, infomercial site about the. It's like what the? <laughs> what country did this come from? It's not even. Anyways, it was yeah, it was not representative of of my mindset or or, or anything. So, so you're. Thankfully. Thanks to you, I actually went in there and did some digging and got the file to open a case with these guys, and then they found out who did it, and they, they shut it down. So that's good. Most excellent. So your actual website is actually chrisalexanderonline.com. Am I got that right? Yeah, well, that's for the film and, and, and the music and, and the that stuff. And then there's um, alexanderonfilm.com, which is the essays that i write when i when the spirit moves me on films i like and and then um well there's deliriummagazine.com which is the site for the magazine i publish and you know there's a few of them out there but chris alexander online for sure is the one that that that's my main kind of thing yeah uh excellent i'm glad we could get that misinformation corrected we we try and be uh, somewhat accurate if not thorough but uh <laughs> there you go so I'm glad you, you're a good sport about all of this. We don't come to it with a with a sense of malice by any stretch. Uh, I mean, you might hear the occasional episode, such as the one this interview is being featured on, where, where a director really kind of gets our goat. But that's that's more content related in the spirit of the of the stuff. And and your content certainly does not have a, a malicious spirit to it by any stretch. Uh, I am kind of. We found it so fascinating that to read, uh, look into your background and, and see that you were editor of Fangoria and had such a, a rich horror background. Uh, do you have any uh, like? How did that come to pass? Like, how did you end up editing Fangoria? Well, you know, just I think it's, it's since I was a little boy. Uh, you know, there were two things that informed uh, my appreciation of of the arts, and one was Kiss. And that's because I found the album Love Gun in a library when I was three, and I didn't know what I was looking at. And uh, if you know the cover of that, that Ken Kelly painted cover, there's, you know, the band is standing in like a dungeon, and there's like vampire women in half dress swooning at their feet. I thought that was interesting. And then uh, Fog is coming out, and it's it's very arcane and, and, and circus-like and bizarre. And then Gene Smith's had fangs and, and bat wings. And so that was my first vampire. So that was like, holy shit. I used to have nightmares that Kiss was coming out of ceiling vents after me. And I didn't know what they were. And so there was that. And then there was horror movies. And so eventually I actually got Kiss albums out and, and realized that they were just a shitty rock band, which I love, you know, they, they weren't <laughs> monsters. And uh, then I started watching horror movies on late night television and, and you know, when I shouldn't have been, and and uh, then I've discovered Fangoria. So Fangoria was my Bible, and I got to see the wizard behind the curtain. So those those are all the things that formed, um, you know, you know, kind of my window to the world. You know, I've always used horror movies and rock and roll to kind of understand what, why people do what they do, and and then just through various circumstances, never letting go of that those passions ever in my life, no matter how it changed. Uh, when I became an adult, I'm in Toronto, Canada. There was a magazine called Room Org that I, I stumbled across, and it was its second issue. And I couldn't believe that like anything like that was being published in Canada, let alone my city, Toronto. And uh, I, I almost got hit by a car because I was reading it on the street. And I ended up calling the magazine. And I said, "Oh my god, you know, blah 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 blah." And they transcribed this raving voicemail to be a letter in the magazine. And and a couple issues later, I was writing for them. So. Uh, I wrote for Room Org and was on their radio station for many years, six, seven years. 
And uh, then I did this fight. I don't know if you're speaking of calling out directors and, 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 you know, chastising them for their work. I was doing that nonstop. And I did that with a guy named Uba Bull. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Familiar. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I called him out pretty hard. And then he put this thing out where he was sick of people shit talking him and he wanted to box them. And I was the only Canadian chosen to fight him. So I, I said, this is great. This is like an Andy Kaufman-esque stunt. And I trained with the guy trained the fighters for Cinderella man. And I, Alice Cooper taught me how to box and Karen black and, and Vern Troy, all these people, this whole documentary made about it. And, uh, Fangoria kind of pricked up their ears and had me on the radio show with Dee Snyder. And, and I, so I was on there like every week and I used that to uh, start pitching ideas to Fangoria. And next thing you know, I was hired as their Canadian correspondent and Fang and rumor didn't like that. So, uh, I was given a choice and I told them to shove it and I ended up, being Fango's correspondent. And then one day I, I got in a bad car accident. I almost died. I almost lost my arm. And uh, I was walking around on drugs and my arm was bandaged. I was in a record store and I got a phone call. And it was it was the publisher of Fangoria that had liked what I was doing and liked that uh, my writing and liked my energy. And, and, and the magazine needed a new fresh coat of paint. And Tony Timpone had been there for many years. And they said, what do you think? You want to be the editor? And I said, yes, I do. And so that was that. <laughs> and I was. So, wow. Yeah, and so they said, "Come to move to New York." I said, "No, I have I have kids, and I don't want to move to New York, and I want to stay here, and and uh, just outside of Toronto." And I did, and I so you know I, I did all that stuff locally while I was being a dad, you know, and uh, so it was kind of bizarre. I went to New York once in a while, and I traveled to LA when I needed to, and everything else, but mostly I just wanted to be around my my, my kids, you know. So for six years, I was the editor of Fangoria while I was also changing diapers and stuff. It was kind of cool. That's fascinating. It's just, uh, you know, as someone who kind of came up in the, the blog era, uh, it, it seems like before we really got into podcasting, we were doing a lot more blogging and it, it's just so hard to get noticed. It's kind of, it's, it's always fascinating. Here's a story about moving to a, a real publication and Fangoria is such a, a hollowed, uh, yeah, it was. It, it was the, it, yeah, to me, it's, it's mythical. I mean, it's 40 years and I'm really glad it's back, but, um, yeah. You know, in whatever shape it is and form it is now. But no, I mean, I just think that, you know, my philosophy has always been the same is that just love what you love, never waver from that, and send out ships every day. You know, don't give up. And, and I've been said no to a bazillion times. I've only been said yes to a couple times. And, but the yeses were always the yeses I wanted to hear. And so I just think you just, you just never, never give up ever. And it's very, especially now, like you say, growing up in the blogosphere and, and where everybody now has a platform that's accessible. It's a lot harder to be heard because there's so many voices. I was attributed, if you ever seen David Cronenberg's scanners at the beginning, you just this Stephen Lack, this the main scanner guy, so here's everybody talking at the exact same time. So it feels like he's gonna his head's gonna explode. And that's the way it feels now. Just everybody's talking, so how do you get heard? So I don't have the solution how that would work today, but um yeah, I don't, I don't know. Just I think there's a purity of voice too. Like you guys, your show is you know, you have a dynamic and you're also you also know your stuff. I mean you're you're serious, you know, cinephiles. You can dissect the film. You know what works, what doesn't work. You know what the you can see what the director was trying to do or not trying to do, and and a lot of people don't. They're just blasting their two-bit opinions all over the internet. And I think people actually can differentiate between an, an informed, passionate, learned response to a piece of art as opposed to some jerk off trying to make sport of it. You know? Uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with that, and and we try our best to. Uh, avoid the latter category, but I want to talk a little about uh, Blood Dynasty. Uh, sure. 
and more or less like what what got you into filmmaking? Did you go to film school? Like I I, I mean I got a heavy uh, Jean Rollins vibe from uh, the work that we saw, and obviously there's, there's some Hammer influence as well. But uh, like what what were you aiming for with the film, and, and kind of what led you to filmmaking to begin with? Well, I mean, Blood Dynasty is the third echo of a movie called right. Blood for Arena, right? So they're all I, – I made Blood for Arena right when I was in the middle of doing Fangoria, and uh, it was financed based on that. And I knew exactly the movie I wanted to make, and I knew it was going to be a movie that a lot of people would despise. <laughs> because my, my influences are, yeah, the genre land as far as – not the sex and the Jess Franco, not the sex and the nudity, but the voyeurism and the obsessiveness. Uh, also, Werner Herzog. And if you watch any Werner Herzog movies, too, you know, he he holds his frames to for an obscene length of time. And he's obsessed with the natural world. And, and uh, you know, I mean, all those things inform the way I look at cinema. But there was also something else going on in my mind. And I remember I did go to film school, but nothing ever spoke to me. And I, I dropped out and then I went into art college and I was wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do, but they wanted me to paint bunnies jumping over fences and color wheels and shit. I'm like, well, fuck this. I dropped out of that too. But the <laughs> only thing that spoke to me out of any of that education was, you know, back when I went to film school, we only, we didn't have video. We had 16 millimeter film. And the first experiment we did was a, uh, I'm a music guy, right? So to me, everything is music. Writing is music. Film is music. Music is music. And we did this experiment where you had to cut leaders. So you had black and white leader. That's all you had. And you had to cut it together to create some sort of rhythm. And then we'd project it. And you had to try to create music um, based on a simple editing of the black and white going back and forth, back and forth, and repeating patterns. And I found that incredibly fascinating and an amazing way to communicate a sort of claustrophobic uh, you know, rhythmic vibe. And then later on, of course, you'd learn about, uh, you know, Russian uh, editing techniques. And where that was basically what they did is take unrelated images and to create music. And if you watch Battleship Potemkin, that's what Eisenstein was doing. But it was just using that black and white leader, that minimalism. I, I just found that fucking fascinating. And so, you know, when you watch movies, it's very subjective. And I would pull things out that I liked. And, and Jess Franco being a huge influence, um, if you watch any of his movies, they're very frustrating to a lot of horror fans because, yeah, there's naked girls and there's blood, but then suddenly the camera will zoom out the window and look at a sailboat. Sure. You know, and then that's the stuff I liked. I liked the sailboat because I found like here was a guy that, you know, and Franco was a jazz musician and I knew Jess a little bit and uh, everything everything he did was informed in a kind of jazz way. And so if you know jazz music, it doesn't really stick to a pattern. It moves around depending on where the guy wants to put it. And so I was, well, those are the things that really interested me. So when I made Blood for Irene, it was an amalgam of the poetry of genre land, the, uh, the meandering obsessiveness of Franco, the holding the frames of, of Herzog and that basic black and white leader repetition patterns and trying to create a sense of claustrophobia in this shithole motel with this vampire lip. Or maybe she wasn't a vampire at all. Maybe she was a, a mentally ill woman. And I love the ambiguity of that. And using that to maybe say a little something deeper that you wanted to say and come off like a pretentious twat. And that's fine, too. But, you know, I, I did want to say a little something and, and using the vampire character. And then Queen of Blood was was an expansion of that. You know, uh, I was trying to make a, a, Gary's the Ra uh, a Gary the Wrath of God 
with the vamp, with the Irina character, but reinventing her in a different way as a force of nature and trying to say things about religion and, you know, whether I said it successfully, I was irrelevant. I knew what I wanted to do and I said it the way I said it. And then Blood Dynasty was kind of, it was a weird afterthought. And uh, it was just like I found this boat and it was bashed up in the harbor. And I did a little research into the history of the boat. The man who owned it and he had sailed it from Quebec, this old uh, galleon. And he wanted to turn it into a restaurant. And it smashed into the harbor and uh, was left to rot. The man died. And uh, then a bunch of kids came on and burned it up. And so it still sits there like a like a, this ghost ship in the middle of this harbor just on the way to Niagara Falls. And I would always see it. And I'm like, one day I just ventured down into it. And I got this really haunted vibe. And I just had this in my mind. I could hear this music. And I just thought, I'd love, I want Irina to come back this time from the grave. Like, if you've ever seen any of the Tombs of the Blind Dead movies, the third one's <laughs> called the, the Ghost Galleon. You know, it's the worst one. It's the cheapest one. And it really is a terribly flawed film, but there's the effective image of, of the blind dead coming out of the water outside by this ship. And I thought, okay, well, I want to reinvent her now as, as kind of a, like people can call her back like a siren, like you can get her from the grave and she'll come back and she'll. And so it was a very simple story. I just kind of like, I don't really write scripts. I just kind of base it on locations and, and what I imagery and, and again, trying to create a sense of claustrophobia. And I basically wanted to make my, my marriage at the time was ending. And, uh, and I was, you know, kind of embittered about the, uh, the treachery of love. And I wanted to kind of create a last tango in Paris with a woman who calls Irina from the grave for whatever reason. And they kind of connect and, and she gets perverted somehow by this influence. And then the influence at the end, you know, completely sells herself out and the influence at the end ends up destroying her, which is what the vampire does. There's really no plot to it. It's more just a series of images and sensations. Well, you said it, not me. Yeah, no, there isn't. There never was intended to be. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I sneer and I spit on plot. I, and, and that's not true because I love all movies, all movies. I mean, I love romantic comedies. Um, but, you know, I just uh, – the reason why I'm late to this interview tonight too is that my girlfriend and I just – I had to see – I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan too and uh, always have Oh, Mandy? You, you catch Mandy? I, I did. So I'm like, okay, well, I haven't seen Mandy yet and I, and it's playing here at a theater and so we just ducked out to see it. And I, come, I came out of that like I have been for a few – there's been a few movies I've seen like Mother and that I've come out completely reinvigorated and inspired and uh, and Mandy was, was that. I mean that was like – you know, uh, my first movie played on a lot of double bills with Beyond the Black Rainbow, Panos Cosmatos' first movies and movie. Oh, I could see yeah. that. Could yeah, there's a kind of you know, obviously he had a little more money and he has a little little bit more ambition when it comes to what how arcane he's trying to get with symbols and and uh, you know it's not what I was ever trying to do, but you know the same kind of obsessiveness is at play. And to watch him actually have a few bucks and, and actually have a, an actor like Cage and know what to do with that energy. But not it's not a plot. Have you seen it? Uh, well, I live in rural Michigan, so we haven't had the opportunity just yet. Oh, yeah. Well, so you'll, you'll, we'll see it eventually, probably very soon. Oh, absolutely. But it's too bad you didn't get a chance to see it projected in the big theater because it is, it is that movie. you know. But it's not a plot, it's not a plot movie. It's a movie of that's a very simple revenge story, but it's obscured by 
so much, uh, you know, bizarre. Like everything, people say, "Well, it's needlessly overstylized." It's like, no, it's it's he's going into bizarre places, and and you know, the style becomes the substance, and the use of music and and uh, is propelling it like an audio visual art installation. And I think that's that's what my movies are always intended to be, not movies that are are. You know, you know, experienced as narrative point A to point B to point C, really, but are more like, you know, art installations that you would kind of, you know, when I was, I should paraphrase, like when I was like, I should back it up. When I was a kid, I would watch all these movies late at night, and I would fall asleep, and I'd wake up, and I'd catch moments of them, and uh, sometimes I didn't know what the moments connected to, but I know that, and sometimes I didn't even enjoy what I was watching, but I knew that the next day when I woke up, those moments would stick with me. And I'd become like oh, kind of haunted by them. So the intention with my movies, all of them, and I made, you know, I just finished my fifth, and there's some stuff going on for a sixth and a seventh at the moment. But um, is never to create uh, conventional entertainment, but rather to create a, a feeling of uh, of dissonance and uh, a haunted feeling where people are experiencing something that may be unpleasant to them. And uh, not like, oh, it's offensive, but just in like generally like this movie's wrong. Everything it's doing is wrong. I'm feeling wrong. I'm angry at this movie. Uh, and But when it's over, suddenly they just like there's moments and images that have been so repeated, just like that black and white leader that I experienced as a kid uh, that are wedged into their minds, like like uh, like a refrain of a song or something. You know, that's the intention, whether or not it works. Sometimes it does for some people. Sometimes people reject. Most people do reject my movies outright. I think the point of the exercise is after I'm dead, if anyone gives a shit, that the things I have done will be connected like uh, pieces of a puzzle. So you don't watch them as standalone pieces, but you'd see them as kind of a, a tapestry. And uh, that's always been the design of them very self-consciously from frame one. Because that's what Jess Franco successes and Jean Roland's movies that we watch them now 30, 40 years later, not as standalone movies. I mean, if you watch Franco's uh, erotic killer or, or bare-breasted countess or whatever the hell you want to call it, it's got a million names, female vampire. I mean, that's the, one of the most boring fucking movies you'd ever want to see. Just Lena Romay walking around, like occasionally sucking a guy's dick and killing him. Like it's <laughs> right. But it's, but there's something about it that is unforgettable and hypnotic. And it's, it's to me, it's his best movie because it's so personal and so obsessive, but it's only his best movie in the context of watching all his movies as different movements in what he was doing. I don't think I, he's my favorite filmmaker, but I can't think, I, I don't think I like many of his movies as standalone movies, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah. Franco's an interesting character uh, as far as in the critical community too i mean well, I, and, he's like and roundly I, considered I, I, like I, I, oh, I, lived, I, I lived through that where franco was i mean it was t- guys like tim lucas and you know we're, res- we're slavishly analyzing him in fangoria but you know tim would get the shit kicked out of him because the general horror fan would then go out and watch these movies and go what the this is not a movie uh-huh. i don't know what this is but it's shit and it's it's amusing to me now to see him talked about in the same hushed tones as as like Godard and stuff. You know, like it's like that's how it happens sometimes. And not saying that that would ever happen with me on any level, but <laughs> but you know that's that's the the beauty of of when there's a, somebody making stuff not because it's they're trying to compete with what's in, in the, at the zeitgeist at the time, but making something that they want to make eventually. 
you look back and you see things as a whole and you kind of analyze the person's mind through the things that they've left behind. And I, I find that my favorite filmmakers are always people that have kind of stuck to their guns with a very persistent vision, you know? So, yeah. So those, that's the, those movies, but I can, I mean, Jesus Christ, if thing is, I love my movies because I, they're intensely personal. They're people I've, People I was married to, people I my children are in my movies. But I, uh, they were built, made around my home. I mean, they're they're so personal to me. Uh, but I, my God, would would I ever actually watch one of my movies if I didn't make one of my movies? Probably not. Never. <laughs> I, no, I'm serious. I, I, I like I, I wouldn't wish when people say, "Hey, I just watched all your movies." I'm like, "Well, I feel sorry for you. I, 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 I really do pity you because they're not." They're not fun experiences, you know. Uh, but I, I think that's what I like about them. In a way, they're kind of my version of clumsy version of punk rock and that they're kind of raging against a certain uh, conventionalism in, you know, I don't know, formalism. Sure. Sure. I, I just find it kind of a fascinating facet of that conversation that of how much of like, as a, I'm a horror fan myself, certainly I, that that's kind of where I cut my teeth in, in film. Like, and a lot of it is just so rooted in, in what you're describing. That's sort of like, half-remembered childhood memory and that fear that you can't ever recapture in adulthood. It, it's just uh, these movies that, that stick with you. Something like yeah. E.T. for me was like it kept me from sleeping for a year or you'd see a, a, an odd ad for a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel that when you watch it now you realize it's it's like a fun house thing. But but then it's just like this image of this burned face. It's, it's just forever kind of attached to your mind yeah well with me it's it's more i mean there's that for sure what, what's frightening as a child is the lights were turned on sadly and you're always trying to chase the dragon and get back to that state as a horror fan but and you never can and that's why so many horror fans are so angry and frustrated is that you know sure. they just they're always trying to be like they were like 12 again it's never going to happen guys but but you know, with me, it was more like like in my movies, there's always liquid melting and blood swirling around in the liquid, like every single one of them, pretty much. And uh, that comes from one thing and one thing only, and that's Roger Corman's 1961 uh, Pit and the Pendulum with Vincent Price. It's his second Poe movie. If you watch that movie at the very beginning, there's an American International Pictures logo, and then it blasts into about three or four minutes of just paint melting while Lex uh, uh, Baxter's music is in the background. And there's no point to that at all, except that it was, Hey, it was the sixties. Right. But you know, it's, it, I was a kid. I remember staying up really late and watching this movie and I was probably about 10. And that's what I, I saw. It was like one in the morning. I shouldn't have been up. And I, that's what I saw. And I did not know what I was looking at. And it hit me in such a primal way. Just color melting and music. And then it dissolved into this coastal image of John Kerr riding along on this horse. So that that, that was what stuck with me. And, and that's why that's always in my movies is that it's my way of trying to channel again that feeling of seeing that in Pit and the Pendulum. And then there was another movie later on um, I still love called Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke uh, where he plays a – have you ever seen it? I have, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So you know this whole story. But you know the very end of it. I mean there's 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 motifs in that movie that repeat and repeat and repeat. One of them is like a tap dancing. Uh, one of them is a big one is, the, is a fan rotating. Yeah, da, 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 or a ceiling fan or sometimes just a, a fan in a window. 
And then at the end, there's he, he goes to hell in an elevator. That's it. And I remember what first time I tried to muddle through that, I was basically zipping in and out of consciousness. And so I only remembered the fans. And then I only rem- would wake up at the end with that music playing saxophone, and then he's going to hell as the credits rolled on this elevator. Well, I presumed he was going to hell. And so you just remember little bits and pieces of these images that don't connect to anything else, except you, 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 you do, you're, you're remembering them like half in this kind of hazy dream. And uh, you can't even quite be sure if you saw them the next day. You're not sure. And then sometimes you go back and watch the movies. They're not very good, and, you know, whatever. Yes. But, but it's those images, those moments, those seconds that you, you've, you've fixated on. So, yeah, again, in my movies, it's almost like an attempt to bridge a series of hazy of those kind of images together like that black and white leader in, in a, in a kind of a, a cohesive whole, if you will. But, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I would prefer, you know, I, I showed my movies, my second movie in Rome at this festival, uh, and it was on the beach of Natuno and, uh, you know, my movies are silent. I don't put dialogue in them because I think, I think words sometimes cheapen you know, the, this experience I'm going for, but, you know, the Italians really loved it because it was not in any language. They didn't have to watch subtitles, English, Italian subtitles. They were kind of experiencing it like a, a, a like a dream on the beach while bats were flying around this ruined castle. And it was, you know, they could hear the ocean behind the screen, like coming in. You could smell the ocean. And it was just like this really weird experience. And I got a really great response from those guys. And I thought that was, you know that's my people, you know, kind of like, okay, that's what I'm going for. And that's the right way to watch one of my movies too, you know, not on a computer screen, which, you know, blood dynasties has yet to receive its release. So it's still trapped in the realms of um, Amazon, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or, not- it's, been, it's also been pirated. Like all my films, God, God damn it. have been pirated <laughs> from here to hell and back. So every torrent site known to man, you can watch all my movies for free. That's fine. Uh, so I didn't pay for them, so that's okay too. So they're out there, but yeah, yeah. I hate I hate the fact that a lot of people see my stuff on a phone or something like that, which kind of sucks. But what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just kind of the modern reality, uh, like it or not. Uh, yeah. If you sit really close to a phone, I guess it's like IMAX or something, so it's fun. Sure, sure. I so I I guess I probably have a little more uh, patience for something like Cosmatos work because it's just. It's playing off uh, an aesthetic that is just like second nature to me. Like uh, if perhaps like David Cronenberg is to me as as Jeff Franco is to you. Like uh, and and Cosmatos is very interested in that in that sort of Cronenbergian aesthetic. And so I, I mean, well, his, well, Cron- I, Cronenberg I, is a lot more conventional. I'm not conventional. He's more Cronenberg because he's you know, and I again being in Toronto, I know David very well. And uh, he's very much like that. He is like a, a really sweet nerd. And he's uh, but his movies, I find, have always been like science to me. And, and they're very analytical and they're always at odds with uh, some of their messiness. And I, I I find his stuff very, you know, wide eyed. He, he doesn't go into the phantasmagorical that much. He goes into the, the visceral and the, and the sexual. Uh, but there's always kind of like this more high-minded analytical because he's an, he was studied entomology, so I always find like he's looking at the world like a man would look at a, examining an insect, and fascinated by all the gushy parts and everything. But it's really just kind of trying to dissect in his mind what's making this weird bionic organic thing tick. 
Uh, but this Cosmatos movie, I, I, it's it's like when you see it, like it's just pure wall to wall from literally from the first moments to the last psychedelia dissolves upon dissolves upon color blasts of blackouts, bursts of bizarre gore, uh, relentless music. But I think I think it would be less successful if it did not have Nicolas Cage in it. And it's not saying it's Cage saves it, but but watching a, an actor who you've seen so much in other more accessible landscapes trapped in this like uh, Dante esque hell True. is incredibly alarming. Like it's it's like wow. I mean, I think I think you'll really. You'll, you'll really dig it, I think, in a weird way. You might not like it, but it, I think you'll definitely uh, respond to it. Oh, I, I think so as well. I mean, there's there's plenty to appreciate in Beyond the Black Rainbow. And I mean, while he certainly is working in a much more stylized fashion than, than Cronenberg ever did, for whatever reason, that movie really evoked that sort of Canadian clinical feel <laughs> of, of early Cronenberg to me. For yeah, me. well, yeah, there's a sterile quality to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I I want to ask you a couple uh, little technical questions, and sure. then um, we'll move on to your new movie because I'm interested in that too. Sure. Um, well, uh, what did you film uh, Blood, uh, Blood Dynasty on? Ah, well, that was just like a prosumer camera. So the first movie I made was we had a you know I'd, I've never been a tech guy, and I've sure. always hated the look of of conventional. Like I, everyone's like, oh, the red, this, the that. I'm like, yeah, cool. Everything looks brown to me. You know, everything yeah. looks everyone. They all everything looks the same. And uh, I, I never, you know, when I was a kid, I used to I had this. My dad bought me this PXL 2000. I don't know if you know what that is, but Fisher Price made a video camera for about five minutes. And uh, it filmed on a on an audio cassette. The audio cassette would move at f- uh, high speed, and it would film a black and white. Look this thing up; it's really cool, and it's worth a lot of money now. I actually have mine still, but it, but it would film a black and white image that was grainy and messed up, and it was so alien that David Lynch ended up co-op to get for a movie produced called Nadia, and a couple of uh, a lot of artists have used it for installations and things, but. I would always prefer to make stuff when I was a kid. Like we, we had a video camera at our disposal, so things could look a little more accessible. But I preferred this thing because everything looked like kind of mucky and, and ugly and weird. And so the first movie was shot. We had a prosumer camera, but I, I ducked in and, and kind of did side DLPs with with an iPhone. And uh, and I used mostly the iPhone footage. Cause I thought it was it kind of had a weird flat feeling. And and so. Queen of Blood was the same thing. We shot on a Rebel, and uh, I ended up ducking in with iPhones. And then my, I really liked it so much that the third one, Female Werewolf, was shot all with two iPhones completely. And uh, people say, that's your best-looking movie. It's like, well, it's great because it's two iPhones on, on tripods, uh, totally. And yeah. uh, that, was, that was for a couple of reasons. One, one being uh, I just wanted to experiment, and I had the license to do it. And two, it was just easy. It, and this you know, something that I could just – do and I wouldn't have to muck around bothering with someone shooting it. I could just do it 100 percent myself. I did it. I did everything. I did everything. I always end up doing everything. But uh, the, the Blood Dynasty was shot with just like a little Sony prosumer camera with some iPhone stuff junked in here and there, and uh, that was it. You know, I, I even cut that on like Windows Movie Maker because I just wanted to just go as low tech and uh, simplistic as I could with that and. Um, yeah, I mean, 
do I wish I had better cameras to capture it? I, I wanted it to look really bright and blown out and uh, day glow like Vampiro's Lesbos or something, you know, just like really kind of because it was a boat driven movie. I wanted it to look kind of like a washed out, like a blown out hot summer day. It's never, I think it's, I don't think it's ever night in that movie at all. I think it's a hundred percent daytime. Yeah. I think and, you're right. And that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to have that anti vampire, you know, most vampire movies, they prowl around in the dark and I wanted it to be totally sunny, everything exposed. And, uh, you know, just, uh, again, I like, I like the idea of the natural world with something unnatural moving in it. And I almost wanted it to make it look like, like, like an Instagram feed or something, you know? So anyways, that was that, but you know, I, I do regret, you know, not regret. There's no regrets at all. I don't regret it one second of anything I've done because I did it the way I wanted to do it. But there's certain things like that boat is so great, and uh, oh. I want to use it. I do. I'll never use it again. Cause there's no point. But but uh, it would have been great to to have more time and more, you know, not have rushed through it so much where I could have actually maybe done something a little more evocative around that boat. But yeah, so that was it. All my movies are incredibly low tech, and because I'm also a kind of a control freak, and and a lot of these movies, you just kind of get the impulse what you want to do. And you just rush into it because I don't want to, I work best alone and I don't like to work with too many people. And I don't like telling people what I want because I just want to just do it. I don't want to fuck around with that. And that's also kind of a, also a good thing and also a flaw for me and what I do. But uh, I should learn to work with people maybe a little more, but I don't. Uh, And if I did, maybe they'd, they'd look a little different or they'd be a little different, but so, yeah, I don't know if that's yeah. a really long-winded way of answering your question. Well, that's what the question is designed for, right? I, I think that the most, like, jarring thing for me as far as, like, being used to traditional cinema was probably the depth of field. And I, that makes sense. It was on a, a prosumer because it just had that sort of infinite depth of field quality to it that you, you're not used to seeing in a movie and yeah, yeah. I, I want, I want to, well, I mean, it's intentional in the sense that I mean, it was all about like the, what was in the frame, but I wasn't really thinking about it being otherwise. I knew it was being made for for a small screen as well. It was being made for for initially for Amazon Prime for this little company called Castle Films. I started with Dave Dakota, made Puppet Master Three and a million other. Oh, I am very familiar with. Yeah. A lot of bad, a lot of bad, a lot of good. Well, good. I don't know. Oh, a lot a of very... movies. They made a lot of movies. Yeah. Anyways, but one of the greatest guys I know. And anyways, uh, so this is just kind of a thing. We were just making some stuff for for Amazon. And I said, well, I just want to, I like this boat and I want to put Shauna back in that Irene dress and reinvent it for something. And just do like kind of a little riff on what I was doing. Plus I'd written some pretty cool synth music and I thought, well, this is good. So I don't know. I wasn't thinking about depth of field. And I mean, one of your things you, you mentioned uh, in your criticism, which jarring to see the highway, for instance, jamming along and behind this character. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that was intentional. I mean, we I absolutely wanted the fact that, you know, all my movies are pretty like look like they were. I love the movie Eyes Wide Shut. To me, it's my favorite Kubrick movie because of the fake New York. And I love the idea of, you know, Tom Cruise is walking around New York at night, but it's clearly some sort of dream version of New York where it's almost like nobody, it looks like a, a city that was invented exclusively for this film. And I've always liked uh, trying to create movies where they're obviously in like super populated areas, but there's nobody really around. 
it seems like this this dream world only created only for the couple of people I'm spotlighting on. There's everybody else's faceless almost. So I kind of love the idea of, and there's even a scene I call attention to it where Irina comes out and she kind of stands there like Max Shrek with her hands at her side and it's like this rebirth marveling at this sky and then these cars are zipping by her, like, you know, blood rushing through the vessels. And I, I wanted that because we never see who's driving those cars. It's just, it's, and they don't really see her, you know? So I like the idea of things going on in the natural world, keep propelling back and forth, but they're really not even really calling attention to or noticing the fact that there's this woman standing there in this bloody dress. And so, I mean, that was maybe clumsy or maybe jarring, but, that was kind of the kind of there by default. Absolutely, certainly, if I was trying to create a world that was hermetically sealed from from traffic, I would not have let uh, allowed a highway to come raging in there, let alone called attention to it. So that was uh, absolutely there by intent. Sure, I think that separates you from a, a lot of the directors we cover. Yeah, I mean, look, look I mean, there's, I, I, you know, you, you can sometimes you can tell. You know, I mean, there's a, I'm not going to say the name of the movie because I would hurt the guy because he's one of the sweetest guys. But there's a filmmaker out there, and I, you know, editing magazines, and I run Delirium magazine, and 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 I ran ShockleyDrop.com. But you know, doing this for a long time, I guess my point is that a lot of indie directors will send you stuff, and I always attribute it like, you know, some I've seen movies that cost like a dollar and they've had a kind of energy that I've found interesting, or you could understand that there's something going on in music, musicality to them. But this one film is so tone deaf and it has is one of those ones where you you see these guys, they go to all these conventions and they must think that if they pack in every dickhead horror movie star into their movie, then it's gonna be a classic, you know. It's gonna like let's get everybody and pay them their day's wage, get them all in it. So it's this movie that's like an all star movie, like every schmo at a convention is in this movie. But there's a scene where there's like a seance and uh they're having the seance and in the corner there's a script girl standing there holding the script and the character's talking and it's one of the people obviously he paid to have in the movie and the girl just kind of script girl realizes the camera's on her and then she just slowly crab walks out of frame and the dude left it in the edit <laughs> and obviously in his mind the way he's thinking is unless he was blind it, this was like she, this isn't this is like not only was she there but she was there the scene lasted like a minute and she's there for almost a full minute but he must have the production value to him must have been more important to have this d-list star orating than worry about this something so pesky like a script girl holding the script realizing that she's in frame and then crab walking out like maybe hey people won't notice that because this monologue is so powerful i mean that kind of stuff you're like oh my god Really? Sure. I mean, that's when you can tell, like, it's like, okay, well, somebody's not just, they're not getting it. You know, they're just not getting uh, the vibe and they're not, the illusion, they don't care about the illusion. It's, they just don't care about it. They just don't understand it. You know, and I see a lot of, oof, geez, oof, you think Blood Dynasty's bad? <laughs> yeah, no, Brother, I trust you. I'll share a few things. And I think to me, it's more like, um, it's people just trying to create a commercial hit when they have a buck 99 in their pocket. It's like, to me, it's the only time when you're in the independence and you have no money, it's the only time when you can be truly do whatever you want in the sense you can be as experimental as you want. You can fuck around with, with form, with content, do whatever you want because your movie will not be opening up against mission impossible. There's no stakes involved in this experiment at all. You know, and if you try to make a movie that's a, that's, 
you know, your greatest ambition is it may or may not end up on a, in the dump bin at Walmart. I mean, is that really what you want to do? You know, you talk about Cronenberg. I mean, Shivers is to me, a, it's a, it's maybe a mess and maybe a movie that he rolls his eyes at, but there's so much energy. You forgive all its trespasses because it's just breaking all kinds of rules or, or a racer head. I mean, was there ever a movie like a racer head before a racer? Head? Nope. No. Lynch was in doing what he it took him years, but he, he was doing something that, you know, there was really very little risk with what he was doing. He wanted to make something that was purely his. And they're so frustrating for me to see independent filmmakers try so hard to chase a commercial dragon that they'll never they, they're not even in the same planet. Like they're not even in the same universe with, you know, it's just not that. So stop trying to be conventional when you, you guess what? You don't have to be. You don't have to wear that suit and tie. Rip it off. Do it. Rip your shirt off. Do whatever you want to do. You know, be bold. Sure, sure. And uh, well, I do want to kick the space vampire to wrap things up, but I also want to touch on the music real quick, I guess, because uh, as much as uh, we might not have been in love with the uh, Blood Dynasty, uh, we were both quite taken with the score. And I've gone on to to seek out quite a bit of your other music, and it's it's really good stuff. Uh, I'm kind of surprised to hear that you're citing a lot of rock influences. I mean, your stuff is very synth-driven, and uh, it almost uh, feels like it comes out of like the industrial scene. Uh, what would you? How would you describe? It? Like, what would you say inspires your music? Well, I mean, I say Kiss is my favorite band of all time, and it, it is. It's another thing I've been lucky. I've to work with Kiss and I produced the the official Kiss magazine for several years now and with with the band. So I mean that's great. I mean but but Kiss to me was always like it's the surrealism aspect of it, you know, the, this the whole pageantry of it. And recently I've been taken with like taken to the point of being dangerously obsessed with the band Ghost for the same reasons where uh this kind of melodic conventional music is coming out of the mouths of people that look like they're from another planet. I love that. You know, I, I absolutely adore that. So that's, that's the appeal for that. But yeah, I'm a rock guy. I mean, through and through, but not just a rock. I'm a music guy, period. I love classical. I love, love jazz. Um, and I'm especially taken with, um, you know, progressive rock too, like Pink Floyd. And, you know, and then obviously that my dad was a huge influence on me. And, uh, for music because he was a music guy and there was an album that he he turned me in tuned me on to when i was four he bought it from the record store he brought it home i remember it clearly and it's jeff wayne's musical version of the war of the worlds it's a two disc it was a two disc album and it's the entire story of war of the worlds kind of as a prog rock opera with richard Bur richard burton as the narrator and, and justin hayward from um with the booty blues singing a lot of the music mm -hmm. and it's, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's, I have actually, yeah, it's, it's, it was, you know, it's mostly in Europe. It had, it didn't really connect as hard here, but it's, everybody knows the imagery with the tripods and the blood and the brains. And, and, but the music is just as, you know, veers between heavy prog rock to super experimental to gurgles, to ambient blurbs. It's, it's cinema. So I think with my music, although there is some rock influence there, um, and industrial too, because Skinny Puppy is one of my favorite bands as well. And there's Kevin Key, I think, is a great uh, orchestrator of bizarre electronic noises and putting beats to them. I think it's my first album is more beat driven. But I think it's more like when I was in film school, 16 millimeter was very expensive. 
And I wanted to make movies, but I couldn't afford it. So when I dropped out, I couldn't just pick up a camera and, and make a movie, really. I mean, so I made music for movies that didn't exist, and uh, it turned that into a stage show. And so with my music, it's always uh, 100% across the board, I'm trying to create uh, cinema with sound. And, uh, you know, that's I'm trying to create the emotions and the atmosphere and the sense of dread uh, that using analog experimental music, using guitars, uh, found sounds, everything I can uh, at my disposal to create, you know, I consider my film, my, my albums to be movies, you know, with no imagery. So that's why I, the movies that I make even exist. I wrote the soundtrack for Blood for Arena before I made the movie. And same thing with Blood Dynasty. So I, I kind of like the, the movies themselves are illustrations and installations to support the uh, the sound. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like my new stuff. We, uh, you know, I, I have written like probably the most conventional straight ahead rock stuff that we've I got a drummer now and everything else. But but uh, primarily I feel weird doing it. Like it feels off, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Uh well, uh, keep at it. It's great. It's great. And the movie does tend to make a lot more sense as something that exists to support the music. Yeah, I mean, you, you, shouldn't, you know, I just shouldn't have to, you know, it, I remember screening Blood for Iron in New York and Jeff Lieberman from the direction Scream comes up, comes up and he's like, stop talking about the movie. <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, it sounds like you're apologizing for it. Because you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk about it at all. Just present it. Walk away from it. And uh, let people interpret it the way they want to, and that's exactly what you should. What I probably should do, but um, I don't want to make it seem like I am apologizing for it. It's more like I'm just trying to, you know, maybe flesh out a little bit of. It. And I know that's the point of even having me on is to kind of say, well, what you know, we didn't like it, but but we can see what you're trying to do, and what were you trying to do, you know, trying right. to fill, maybe fill in a few blanks so that if. People do end up one night on a late night and bore slow night, stumble across one of my pictures and maybe have a little bit of context and uh, and maybe look at them in a different light. You know, maybe look at them in a different way as opposed to maybe they, you know, I mean, I just just very quickly, I know we're crushed for time. We watch Mandy tonight and just be transported to another dimension and people were walking out of the theater, too. It's fucking it's it's a line in the sand thing. But. We come back and we sit on the couch and we thought we'd give this new, like, The Purge show a shot. We pop it on and I, I just couldn't connect with it because I, I'm still in, in the mode where I'm trying to watch Mandy, you know, and I try to interpret Mandy. And there's nothing to interpret in something like The Purge because it's meat and potatoes straight ahead. So yeah. sometimes, sometimes I think because my movies look and breathe and smell like horror movies, because I don't even think of them as horror movies. Um that people might be looking at them as horror movies and, uh, and it's probably not the way to look at them, I think. And, uh, so maybe that's what sometimes I try to say is like, you know, don't look at them even like traditional movies, look at them as something else. So there you go. Well, uh, having recently done a, a podcast in one of our other formats on, uh, the purge, not the TV series, but the film series. Yeah. I, I think you're going to be all right to miss out on that one. Uh, it does not have a ton to say. And it, I don't think it's made with the same level of consideration that uh, you're exhibiting in your work for the most part. It, it's a series. Well, they're different. I don't even do better or worse. They're just completely different animals. I think that's yeah. the point. Yeah. Absolutely. I just think it, it's definitely 
got a, a callous consumerism to it uh, in its execution. Yeah, it exists for completely different reasons. That's, that's absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, Space Vampire uh, certainly piqued our interest as an upcoming film. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> not about to run out and see it, but just well, you good. Know, it's good, called yeah. Space Vampire. And, yeah. Well, uh, it's called okay. Yeah. So it's it's called. If you hated Blood Dynasty, you'll really hate Space Vampire. Uh, and uh, a couple of things really quick. I love um, the movie Toby Hooper's Life Force, uh, which is based on a book called sure. Space Vampire. And uh, I love the idea. All my movies are actually kind of uh, based on Life Force because I love the idea of a woman, female presence that's otherworldly that is, is tuned in to – it's almost like she's tuned into a frequency that only she can hear. Being almost remote control, like an automaton through this landscape. And I love that. Um, so that's one of the reasons, because I love the words space and vampire together. I think they're great. And then I wanted to be irreverent in the case of this movie. I don't even, she's not even a vampire, really, in the traditional sense at all. Um, now, the movie, that's that, you know, but the movie is really. My girlfriend and I—I uh, I got this big box set of Crown International exploitation movies. It's like a cinder block, and there's like 200 movies in it. <laughs> and uh, the Crown International is a drive-in distributor, and so there's tons of shit horror movies, kung fu movies, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I stumbled upon a movie called The Van, and I don't—I don't—I don't smoke weed, but that night I did, and uh, we watched this movie called The Van, and uh, it literally was a, a guy in a van just driving around LA. And once in a while, attempting to get laid doesn't really work out for him. And he gets back in the van and he keeps on driving. And I was like, this is just fucking fascinating. Because you talk about stripping it down to its bare. Danny DeVito also shows up at one point, inexplicably, a very young Danny DeVito. <laughs> but um, just the fascination of this thing, like, oh, my God. And then we did a little more research because there were more movies in this box set that had dudes driving around in vans. There actually is a subgenre of movie called vansploitation. And so I'm like, well... So we said, let's just make this movie, but instead of um, – let's create you a really fetishy character. Let's pour you into black PVC, and let's make it like Under the Skin because I love that movie. Or The Man Who Fell to Earth. Love that movie. Uh, but let's make it so that you're the van, and that's it. So it's Space Vampire, although there's a much more to it than just that. It's Genesis started from getting a little bit high and watching a 70s vansploitation movie called The Van and thinking it would be really neat to kink that up a little bit and add a vague vampiric angle and a psychological angle and jack it up with tons of my in-your-face analog synth music and see what we can do. So that's what we did. And it's quite fascinating, but yeah, it's – it's not going to win over any new fans, that's for sure. If you didn't like Blood Dynasty, just the only thing about this one is most of it does take place at night, so it feels a little more uh, nocturnal. That's all. Yeah, uh, reading the description under the skin was certainly right where my mind went. So yeah, under the skin, I think is a uh, you know again just blow, blew me away, uh, but it, it, I connected to it the same way I connected to Mandy and and the Man Who Fell to Earth and all those movies that again not necessarily plot driven, just the fascination of watching. Uh, somebody walk endlessly through a landscape while some sort of strange music kind of rips my head apart. It's, I, just that alone I found interesting, you know. I find Glazer to be an endlessly fascinating filmmaker. But So do I. Yeah, so do I. Absolutely. 
So, uh, well, I also want to shout out that whoever is doing the art for your films, uh, it's killer. It's amazing. Well, I think, you know, back to the Franco thing, when I was a kid and I worked with uh, Full Moon pretty closely, uh, we did Delirium together, Charlie Band and I, and and I do a lot of shit for them, probably more than people know. But but when I was a kid, I rented all the wizard videos. That's how I discovered Franco. And that's Charlie's company. And he's one of the first guys to bring Franco's stuff over here, really not knowing what he was doing. He just licensed a bunch of foreign movies. But... The movies were always these kind of bizarre art movies, which were Franco stuff, but he would commission these Italian artists to do these garish, outlandish, comic book-like, gorgeous pieces of art that made the movies look so grandiose and so outlandish. And then you'd watch them and you'd be like, this is not the cover. And that's what I loved about the, the Wizard video stuff, and I think that's what a lot of people love about them is that dichotomy between the minimalism of, you know, an anti-genre nature of some of those movies and then the, the almost like Marvel Comics on steroids aspect of the cover art. So my stuff, that was, again, a self-conscious move on my part to create, a, you know, impressions of what the movie is with very, very lavish art. And the guy that paints, you know, all of these stuff is a guy named Nick Percival, who... Uh, did all the Marvel Zombies uh, comics. Oh, sure. Did the Hellraiser comics. He did the John Carpenter, the recent spate of John Carpenter comics. He did, he's been doing Judge Dredd for years. And, uh, you know, I I met him through, he's based in England. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's him who does all my stuff. And and what I do is simply is I, I, I make the movie and I send him a couple stills or I send him the movie and he kind of gets an impression of it. And I say, just go, you know, just go into a phantasmagorical level with it, and that's what he does. Well, I am very glad that the uh, website that was misrepresenting his work is, is now defunct. <laughs> it's dead. Thank you for that. You, you helped me. You led me to this cesspool, and I've, I've dried it up. So thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so when is Space Vampire uh, going to pop out? Is it getting a, a streaming release? or well, is it, what, uh... what, what the deal was, and I'm really late in the gate, you know, I had a rough year. My dad died this year, and it's just like a heavy fucking year, you know? So sure. Space Vampire should have been done a long time ago. So a couple little tweaks here and there I want to do. And then the, what was always the intent was Dave and I, Dakota and I, were going to release two movies and then eventually release uh, put them on Amazon then then blast them out as a kind of a Chris Alexander double feature on Blu-ray. And so uh, Space Vampire will hit Amazon Prime probably within the next month. And then, uh, you know, maybe later this year or early next year, they'll be uh, both released on a, on a hard format uh, way. So, yeah, but Space right. Vamp- you'll see Space Vampires soon. And, Is it, uh, did you have any festival run, or are you just going? No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing. I didn't want to do that with either one of these. I got kind of burned out on the festival run. I got sick of it, and uh, I find the festivals are kind of like a circle jerk of of, of people that are all glad handing each other and kissing each other's butts, and so you get an inflated and obscured sense of what your movie is. And then you actually send it out into the world, and then some of these people are just devastated when their movies just not. You know, you outside the, it's it's an insular world, and I find it to be unrealistic. I much prefer getting a, a, a natural reaction like like you guys have, than than a bunch of people pat me on my back saying how great my movie is, and then when it gets out into the wild, it's like, see you next Tuesday, you know. So I kind of got burned out on that that stuff from my stuff. It's not of none of interest to me really at this point. Um, sure. I'll wait till I do the big movie, which is kind of coming. So, um, 
then then we'll go a little bit uh, harder with it. But for these little movies, no, I, they're just like little songs I wrote that I'm kind of just quietly releasing and amassing in volume that are kind of the blueprint of what I'll be doing eventually. And um, yeah, so we'll do it kind of like that. Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, I should say about Space Vampire that might be of some appeal is the intent was also because there's kind of a I'm not a drug person. I have to underline that and underscore. I've never done drugs. I don't enjoy them. But this is kind of the drug movie in the sense that the movie is the drug. So it's it's very self-consciously trying to be a bit of a trip. So you can maybe trip a little bit without having to imbibe in with anything. Sure. sure. Uh, well, I'm going to let you go. We run a little long here. But uh, yeah, this is it. This has been uh, a good time. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you're a good sport about all this. And, uh, boy, I hope we can do this with a few other directors. But in the meantime, I'm glad we at least got to do this one because it was a, a great time. Yeah, and keep up, the, keep up the good work. I like what you guys do. It's, it's, it's interesting. And, um, yeah, keep up the good work with the show and everything else that you're up to. So thanks. Well, thank you, and, and you do the same. I, I am interested in this quote-unquote big film, because you've got a lot of passion, a lot of ideas, and a lot of knowledge of the the art form, and uh, I'd be interested to see what you could do with a little backing. Well, we got this movie, just you know, if you go, casual Google of it, it's called Blue Eyes, and it's written by Barbie Wilde from Hellraiser 2. And, uh, and the two of us, actually, I actually, we actually wrote a script and something I normally don't do. And, and uh, we have... You know, but we have financing for it. We just don't know how much. Um, even in its lowest form, there's two versions of it. The highest form is like Fantasyland. The lowest form is still the fucking Ten Commandments compared to my other stuff. So either way, it's a it's a it's a substantial um, step up. So yeah, hopefully we'll be going to camera with that soon. Well, that is exciting news. Uh, and again, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I'll take care. And this is a uh Enlightening. There you go. Thanks very much, man. All right. Have a good night. All right. right, Bye. And that was Chris Alexander. Uh, Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. A little something different. But, uh, yeah, Uh, join us again on the next episode. And uh, it'll be less enlightening than that. I promise. (laughs) 